Hey guys, before we get started with this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, I want to point out an unfortunate incident. Um, due to unforeseen circumstances, both in the recording and the acquisition of a backup copy from our Skype conversation, uh, there is 10 minutes of the conversation that was unfortunately not salvageable. Um, and unfortunately, it does come at a pretty prime moment in the movie regarding uh, the character of Jane and the character of Renato. Uh, so I want to apologize on behalf of myself and only myself, because this is uh, my fault and nobody else's, and apologies to my guest Tron Strelick, who is making his Yesteryear Ballyhoo debut this week, and unfortunately uh, I fell short on being able to have the full conversation ready. Um, it's only 10 minutes, uh, but still... Nevertheless, an egregious error. It will never be repeated again. Uh, and now, I will take you over to Henry, who will then take it over back to me. Seems kind of like a weird roundabout way of doing things, but whatever. Uh, and now, Henry. Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have many ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight we continue our travels abroad as we move from Japan to Venice, Italy, through the eyes of David Lean. Through his lens, Venice becomes that place where the sights are glorious, the gondolas are aplenty, and it can be where even the trickiest of romances can blossom as we follow the passion to be found in the summertime. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. things to me. Yes, this is Venice. Captivating, enchanting Venice. The world's most beautiful city. An inviting place for lovers. Here is one man who should know, for this is his home. And here, at a cafe in the Piazza San Marco, is where it all began. That one completely unforgettable summertime we have all known. This was theirs. Jane's and his. And it started as casually as this. I don't know what your experience has been with American tourists. My experience has been that the tourists have more experience than I. Jane arrived with three pieces of luggage and a heart full of dreams. How naive and unrealistic they were. But when she understood that life can never be quite like you dream it, their real happiness began. Why did you do that? Why? There are others whose lives touched theirs. 
who will always remember that summertime in Venice, Signora Fiorini, who liked some of her guests better than others, Eddie Yeager, the American artist with an eye for beautiful women, among them his wife, Phil, little Mauro, who could worm the gold out of any tourist's tooth. Oscar, lady? He made one mistake with Jane. He told her a lie. It almost ended their romance before it began. Perhaps it should have. But the lady was not so angry. She'll do that very well. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Having garnered an esteemed reputation in Britain for films ranging from brief encounters to great expectations, David Lean packed up and made a trip outside of his native home to adapt Arthur Lawrence's acclaimed play, The Time of the Cuckoo. With a colorful cast led by Katherine Hepburn at his side, Lean would not only bring a fiery and realistic romance to the screen, but he would see the appeal of filming in, in exotic locations, an appeal that would carry him through the remainder of his life and work. How does Summertime hold up with great epics by Mr. Lean, and how do we see its effects on the modern romance tale? That shall be the journey we take off into that far-off land of film theory. Here on this excursion with us today is a writer, director, actor, and all-around jolly gentleman whose latest work, the short film Gunther, tackles the many sides of toxic masculinity in a succinct form that can be only admired and praised. He also happens to love this period in film we blab about each and every episode, so naturally it was inevitable that we would have in our company the one and only John Strelick. Great to be here. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I should be here. <laughs> no, you should be here. You should you should be here. Um, I, I will tell you and the audience why. Uh, you, as far as I've known you, um, to uh, the, like really the first time we ended up collaborating together was on a film called Antlers that you wrote and directed. Um, and from our conversations just outside sipping coffee before each day of work, uh, you were uh, a, a, a very very um, passionate about your different ends of uh, filmmaking. And one of the things that we latched onto each other with was we not only admired the golden age of Hollywood, but we also listened to the same podcast, The Secret History of Hollywood. Yes. Um, which, <laughs> so we both have that uh, that fandom in us that uh, kept our kept our friendship to bloom in all these many years. Um, but you are now in uh, the Los Angeles area, uh, yes, where you are, where you're, where you are currently, much like the rest of the world, stuck on lockdown. <laughs> so yep. um, I will ask, I will ask the question that uh, I've had to ask everybody: uh, How are you holding up in COVID land? <laughs> I'm doing great, uh, you know, <laughs> great, gratefully. Uh, so you know, there's nothing. Uh, you know, there's nothing tragic happening with me and my person or, or, uh, or my friends and family right now. Thank God. Um, but you know, uh, as good as it could be going, I, I suppose it is going, you know, but I just, <laughs> the, 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 the feeling of boredom, I guess. <laughs> like, what do I, what do I do today? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't not that big a deal because you know, I, I know how to fill my day. Yeah. No, it, you, and you, you keep you keep busy with writing and creating, so you're not like you're not starved for anything to actually accomplish. So yeah, it's a great time to uh, to write. Uh, I'd be 
I'd be really, I'd feel weird trying to, trying to shoot something right now. I don't know. Yeah. I know people are doing that, but I don't know how, how they do that. That would just kind of feel a little strange, but it's a great time to write. You have, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have so much, uh, so much time available that it's like, um, it's kind of overwhelming, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that like I've, I've filmed two different times, um, uh, within the year since COVID's happened and I'm, I'm here to report that it's not easy, but yeah. it's doable. Um, it depends on the, it depends primarily on the story you're telling and the, uh, the ability of patience you have with time itself, <laughs> because, yeah. uh, uh, the, the latest thing that I had done leather Brown was since it was a conversation piece between two actors, it was very easy to keep them separated when necessary. Um, we were able to thankfully, um, we, we had a very minimal crew, so we were able to get that done. Uh, and then the other thing that we just, uh, ended up dropping as of this recording, um, which was a black Friday short we do each year for real nerds. Um, that one, again, just three people making the thing happen. Um, so like I ended up directing, co-directing that short, uh, where I was, whereas I would normally not because we needed to get as many actors as we could between us three into the shots. And so I would end up directing the guy who um, normally directs the shorts themselves um, because he had to be an actor this year. So, which well, he could fun. he could find he room. could find no better uh, uh, person to uh, replace him during moments of acting <laughs> there than you. I, I have seen Aww. Leather Brown, and it is wonderful. Aw, thank you, bud. I appreciate that. But we're not here to talk about my sappy romance movie. We're here to talk about Summertime. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we are here to talk about David Lean. Now, I'm going to be up front with you and the audience here. I am not a David Lean head. I don't lean on him, if you will. Um, now, now, now. to be fair, this is not because I don't like David Lean. I do, actually. I like Lawrence of Arabia. Um, I do like Bridger on the River Kwai and Hobson's Choice is a good Charles Lawton movie. But other than that, I am very David Lean ignorant. Um, now, when I sent out the uh, requests for guests on this show, um, you gave me a hefty list of interesting choices, among them uh, being Summertime. And I latched onto that one primarily because I had never seen it before. So this is a first time viewing for me. Um, but what is your history with David Lean and uh, Summertime in particular? Uh, well, that's actually... I, uh, I had never seen a David Lean movie uh up until a couple years ago and really? uh well i had seen parts of uh, lawrence of arabia mm-hmm. but mostly i just heard my dad talk about that movie all the time uh, he he'd watch <laughs> it every once in a while and i'd walk in and it would be on and he'd be like this is this is the greatest movie you've ever seen and you'd be like shut up dad <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah to be fair he said that about every movie that he had on um <laughs> <laughs> the greatest movie uh, yeah. I've seen today, son. <laughs> the greatest movie I've ever seen. I I don't know how many times he showed me the the Dawn of Man sequence in two thousand one, growing up, Ooh. where he's like, he's like, this is important. You need to watch this. Aw, that's that's nice. At least he was introducing you to the stuff and being like, get used to this imagery. It's going to be important down the line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and then he and then he he never showed me the rest of the movie. I just watched the Dawn of Man sequence over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> for the longest time you didn't realize 2001 a space odyssey was a, a space movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i just thought it was a yeah. caveman picture what if what there's a fucking robot in here and he's running Ooh. a ship what the hell's going on <laughs> it was a surprise it was alarming 
Um, but so, so you haven't, you, up until that point, up until a few years ago, you hadn't had really a full exposure to lean. So then what, uh, what changed your, um, your, uh, your, your, uh, trajectory to get you to the lean sphere as it were? Uh, well, I came about, um, a period of, uh, like unemployment, you know, as uh, uh, working in, uh, Los Angeles, uh, you are prone to come upon. Uh, within the film industry, <laughs> no, that is a uh, that is a constant word in the sphere of uh, filmmakers in L.A. Yeah, and I, I think uh, a lot more people within all industries. Uh, oh yeah, right about now are feeling the unemployment. But um, this was a couple years ago, pre-pandemic, and uh, and I had not been, I, I was not accustomed to having free time, you know. It was the first yeah. time it was like, well, uh, you know, I'm looking for work. I'm not able to find it. I couldn't be creative for some reason. There was some kind of block in there where it was like, now that I have all the time in the world to do something creative, I am incapable of doing it. So I thought, which is, uh, a, common, which is a common syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, I feel like, I feel like that's common. Yeah. And you, it, you, unless, unless you're getting thrust upon something to do like a creative project by somebody else, like it's kind of hard. I've always felt it's hard to kind of motivate yourself to do it. It's really hard when you're not used to it to, to self structure your, mm -hmm. your, your day. And, 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 and it's so much easier and, uh, to, especially having grown up in like school systems and things like that to be like, there is a structure to your life and then you can work around that to do what you want to do. But when you're in charge of it, you know, without being used to it, it's just, it's, it, it's really strange how it just becomes like impossible to do. I don't know. Uh, maybe not yet for everyone, but I'm really glad I went through that experience a couple of years ago because now during this forced sort of, uh, uh, quarantine. I'm. I know what to do. You know. I know how to yeah. handle it. I know yeah, I handle being exactly. alone and have my own free time. But at this time, I thought, well, if I can't write a movie, if I can't figure out a movie to make, I'll just watch movies. So I w I went through a period of a couple months of watching three or four movies a day, and one of uh, the first people I, I wanted to acquaint myself with was uh, was David Lean. I, 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 I was, I, I thought, well, okay, I've always heard about Lawrence of Arabia. I should watch it. If it is one of the, the best movies, according to my father, I should check it out. <laughs> this is the Strelic Select section of your library. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love that label now. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, so then I, um, I, uh, I did end up going through most of his filmography. I did, I have not seen, um, uh, some of the earlier ones, mm -hmm. uh, Blythe Spirit. Um, I, I have not seen Madeline or his, um, or his, uh, his documentaries or, uh, what mm -hmm. was the one he did after Madeline? Um, I will, I think I can look that up here. Like, he, but he had a, his document, like his penultimate work was a documentary, which I yeah. found interesting. I had no idea about that, but it was, um, it's a film called Lost and Found, the story of Cook's Anchor, which I'm kind of curious about. Uh, but the one after he, the one he did after Madeline was the sound barrier, according to the Wikipedia here. Um, which no was Wikipedia. a, uh, which, 
the, the Wikipedia. That's a, that's a that's a dead author's podcast joke there. Um, but uh, <laughs> but he ended. That's when he ended up winning the National Board of Review for Best Director and the BAFTA for Best Film. Um, which I mean, now I'm interested. Ooh, it's a it's a it's an airplane picture. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I want to watch it's, this. It's it's pretty well regarded. And it's got Denholm Elliott in it, so maybe he'll talk to an archaeologist in that movie. Who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but who knows? Uh, but 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 uh, so what's so I guess what I would want to ask you. So you you go through the majority of his stuff. Then um, how did mm-hmm. Summertime like? Did Summertime just kind of naturally fall in? Like okay, I'm cranking down the list, or did you kind of look at it and go like, say, what's this? Well, uh, I I came upon it, and the first thing that struck me is that. Um, it was in color, and that was something new, because uh, I was I was going aside from Lawrence of Arabia, I was going chronologically. And so then suddenly you're kind of burst into his form of Technicolor after being exposed to the the earlier black and white stuff. So it's already kind of like a shocker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you start out with him. Um, well, I mean, we we could talk about that when we get to kind of going through David Lean, but uh, it, it it was a Catherine Hepburn, obviously. Uh, stood mm-hmm. out as being like, okay, this is something familiar. Venice, this like new locale, this like exotic place, was something like, oh, okay, this is this is something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then and then it was just delightful. I mean, I, I don't. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that is a great way to describe this movie. <laughs> I, it was, I was sitting, yeah. I was sitting back rewatching it today, and I was just like, because I I watched it like about a week before. For uh, gearing up to record with you, and I'm like, I, you know, like, <laughs> this is just, uh, this is just a charming fucking movie. <laughs> like, oh my god, right? <laughs> it's it's like it's it's so it's it's not what I think of when I think of David Lean. So it kind of threw me off initially because I like again mm-hmm. my primary exposure apart. I guess the closest that I had had to something of this nature was Hobson's Choice. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I don't remember Hobson's choice that well. Um, and then again, like when you think David Lean, you think big, you think epic, you think match being yeah. blown out, and then suddenly in desert, uh, like that. The you think about like a lot of those iconic Omar Sharif. Ooh yeah, Omar Sharif. I think <laughs> uh, <laughs> I only think of David David Lean when I think Omar Sharif. <laughs> and yeah. I think about Omar Sharif all far too often. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, such a so when such you, a handsome man, my guy. Oh, oh, God, you mean he could charm Barbara Streisand, dude? So you know that he had it going on. <laughs> um, that's no, that's but, no. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was gonna say that's 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 me digging into my Fanny Bryce knowledge way too much today. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what? What am I gonna bring up? Funny girl and funny lady today? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> feel free. Um, feel free. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, at this point, why not? Um, but so, yeah, you're you, you're astute in kind of pointing out that, like, you know, you're just you're 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 not expecting what you're getting out of summertime. And I'll I'll say that, like, when it comes to David Lean, we do think exotic location. We do think like a, a place you've never seen before. And like uh, a, a sidetrack on this, if you uh uh, yourself are already listening to this and go, well, I don't know much about David Lean. Well, don't listen to me. Only listen to Strelick or more importantly, or uh, just as importantly, I should say, 
on YouTube, there's a documentary called David Lean, a life and film. Uh, it's super long. It shows a lot of footage of him directing passage to India. Um, but also it really digs into why he loves cinema. And I got to say, like a lot of the reasons he expounds for liking cinema are very present on the screen with any film he makes because, he describes it as when he first went to the cinema, like he was entranced by it because of the idea of going to places he'd never been to or may never go to and dealing with characters he'd never meet in his real life. So it's a lot of escaping the doldrums of his suburban upbringing in London at the time. Um, and yeah. really when you watch summertime, what's interesting to note about it is uh, in doing research for this, up until summertime, he really doesn't leave the confines of a studio or specifically Gamma British, um, which, you know, I, I mean, if you listen to Shamley, you hear us talk about the earliest ends of Gamma British, but we haven't really discussed before on this show in whatever carnation it's been in. Gamma British was more than just the house that Hitchcock came from. It was a lot of, it was the centralized area for a lot of filmmaking in Britain. And David Lean came out of that. He worked his way up. Like he run, he worked up the ladder through silent films, which I was unaware of. He started as an editor. Yep. He started as an editor after gaining, he worked. I mean, like he, in the doc, they described like he's go, he went through and did vir virtually everything like you do in film school. Essentially you go through, you, you work every department whatsoever to get experience. He, he sent cements himself in as an editor. He works from 1930 up into 1941 as an editor, he is known as the guy who will save your movie. So if your movie is in trouble in Gamma British, you go, we call in the lean man because the lean man <laughs> will get this shit done. Um, amongst the things he edited were stuff like uh, the ghost camera, as you like it, ball at Savoy, um, uh, major, pa major Barbera and uh, 49th parallel. Now, in the year 1941, when 49th Parallel comes out, uh, he uh, he starts getting uh, acquainted and then ends up working uh, with Noel Coward. Um, Noel Coward. And uh, Noel Coward. Oh, who doesn't love Noel Coward? I'm actually very <laughs> Noel Coward ignorant as well. So there we go. Um, and, and actually learning a lot about Lean made me want to uh, to vi to start down and visit the Noel Coward years because he basically teaches Coward how to direct, and so their films are co-directed with each other. So like Noel, well, it's Coward a it's a, it's its first uh, first phase. I, I like I I think of it as like the phases of his career. That first fade phase, I think that's the Noel Coward phase. Yeah, and it's and that ends up working with him for a couple of films until he essentially breaks away. Uh, it, 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 if I'm looking at this correctly, Brief Encounter is really the first one where he gets the sole directing credit. But um, that could oh. be another... But he uh, he's with uh, Noel Coward as a producer on that film. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it, it could still be the same situation, like... Because, like, after that, the last time... That would be the last time he has Coward involved because then after that, it says here, Great Expectations. So... Yeah, that's his second phase, the Dickens. Yeah, the Dickens phase, where you get Great Expectations and Oliver Twist. And 
I've never seen his Oliver Twist, but I think everybody in the world knows his Oliver Twist because of a very famous line of, please, sir, I want some more. More? Yes. <laughs> more? More? You want it, it, more? That, that quick editing. I saw the clip in the documentary, that click, quick editing of more, more. He wanted more? <laughs> like, Absolutely. Oh God, yeah, just, well, the, 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 the first... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That and the Alec Guinness performance, though uh, mm-hmm. controversial, you know, <laughs> if you take away yeah. certain pr- uh, perspectives of it, it is it is uh, you know it's a very bold performance, very memorable. But that that first period with with Noel Coward, Noel Coward being a playwright, it was very mm-hmm. you know play centric, which also comes back in with Summertime, which started out as a play, but moving into. Uh, the Dickens uh, uh, adaptations they did. You you look at them and they're like, they're very like 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 express like like very informed by like German expressionism. They're they're very like they're on like this this surreal black and white sort of these sets that just like that that, that look almost like out of like a like a fairy tale book in a way. Mm-hmm. In yeah, the way so that. Ca- which kind of goes back to like its earliest origins with stuff like Caligari, where the, it doesn't feel entirely real. Exactly, but it does feel like he's kind of coming more into his own in terms of like his his visual presentation and how he how he wants to tell a story visually as a director rather than these more play centric performance centric um, uh, films, which I I have not seen The Happy Breed or Blythe Spirit, but Brief Encounter is. A masterpiece. It's it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful, heartbreaking movie that just makes me cry for for days. Well, um, then, then the, okay. Uh, note to self: start watching Lean, motherfucker. I god damn it, I'm, I'm missing <laughs> out. <laughs> this is what happens when you watch too. You much would love you would movies. love brief <laughs> brief encounter. You'd love it. It's 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 fantastic. It's so simple and so beautiful. It's on the list, and then we'll sit down and talk about it after we do this because. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll to. you'll be our you'll, you'll be our lean correspondent, yeah, because you are a David Lean fan, and I also know for a fact that you're a lean fella. So there you go. Um, but <laughs> so, so when we get to this point, though, after after the coward phase, he essentially he. He starts the the real break. I would it seems like from all account and from what I'm seeing on screen, summertime is interestingly his break into what we would tend to identify with his style. Um, and by style, I guess I would mean like there's a there's a, the convention of like how a director's work is viewed i i would argue through the clip shows that we see each year at an oscar ceremony or an afi tribute or whatever where when you think of spielberg you think you know eyes looking longingly at something magnificent if you think of martin scorsese you think of tracking shots and uh <laughs> very flawed human beings or when you look at george lucas and you think Oh, that that looks pretty, and then you know, um, so w- with <laughs> summertime, though, realized world, yeah. Oh, oh God, what a magical universe I created! I'm I'm the David Lean of space. I I'm just wonderful. The, yeah, I'm, I mean, that's I, another I, thing. Like, how the, that I how the just... hell did he come up with all this stuff? <laughs> like, how was how was Star Wars such a fully formed universe 
in like that wow. first low budget movie. And now there's, I mean, that's a, that's a different topic. But like I was and just now thinking about controver- that the other day. Like, and, 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 no, it's, it's, no, it's a fair question. You know, how does it go from the hero's journey consistent of this universe that he took time to create that has now turned into controversies over race and sex? I don't understand. <laughs> God damn it, Star Wars fans. Stop it. <laughs> God, well, I mean, just enjoy your space stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a that's a different conversation altogether. I was just thinking like oh, how yeah. did he, how did he come up with like these like the design for like, like <laughs> speeders and like all these and X wings and and uh, Boba Fett's costuming and all this stuff that like just translates through all these sort like it, it's like how I I don't know man he, he's such a excellent world builder. I'll tell you a good portion of the visual acumen on it goes to Ralph McQuarrie who's um his his um uh concept designs for the first Star Wars are a lot of what ended up dictating the visual scheme of the movie in terms of the aesthetic, the designs of the characters, um even down to costume choice. Like if you look if you look up Ralph McQuarrie's drawings for Star Wars, you will see the universe that Lucas created uh put into those designs that's where it's like it's it's Ricori sitting down and looking at what Lucas has got and says like well it's space shit so I'm gonna draw this space shit <laughs> like that's uh, uh, which he, that's... <laughs> that's that's the best way I know how to say it you know I can't be too hoi polloi because we've got um I've got too much uh vulgar language in my system <laughs> but, well that's a beautiful thing uh, you know the the beauty and and the genius of that uh that that vision and that world comes down to collaboration and not a sole yep. person, which is so often so true and under underappreciated in cinema that yep. the, the art of collaboration. Right. Which I'd argue is like, you know, we, it tends to skew our perception of what everybody does in every given department. Like we're, I mean, I mean, we can actually get into it within summertime because like summertime uh, and, and David Lean in general, David Lean through all the interviews that I watched in prep, like he's very, very collaborative with people. Like he's not, it doesn't seem like he's as uh, too, it's, it's, he's not 100% controlling. Like he is described as a, uh, as a director full of detail and extreme vision. But if you watch the footage of him directing passage to India, like he's coordinating with everybody on that set. Like he's not like, Absolutely. he's not, he's not just walking around with a fucking riding crop Absolutely. like that. Image and, of a and to go back to the, the, the point that I, I think you were making when it comes to director styles, he is kind of uh, uh, an anomaly in, in more like, like Hitchcock kind of, you know a Hitchcock movie; it it evolved to a certain point, and there was there was evolutions within that. But uh, but David Lean, I feel like he he went he went from from these play adaptations to these like these expressionist uh, novel adaptations to Hobson's Choice, which is like uh, like a comedy to Summertime and 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 these epics and stuff. He was it's like he was more of a I I. I hesitate to say chameleon because it's not necessarily him shape-shifting i feel like it was like he was more like um an evolutionary director in a way like the way like say somebody like you know bob dylan as a musician or or, or something goes through these like this evolution where it's like they just turn into something new and they follow that yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that because there is a uh 
if I guess if we were looking at a director to fit that mold, I'd argue that I'd argue that Spielberg ended up doing it because oh, he yeah. started from a very specific point and then evolved into another point. Now, again, you you may be thinking like, well, I'm talking about only two points of his filmmaking style. I'm like, no, but if you really look at each film he does leading up to something like Schindler's List, there's always an attempt in some form or fashion to break a mold he's already set up. Yeah. Um, yes, we know him for blockbusters, but you know, Always is a very underrated film, partially because it's a remake of a film that should be discussed on this show because it's also a good film. Um, but uh, by the time you get to something like Schindler's List, like Schindler's List is like the ultimate 180 from everything he had done, even in dramas. So he was always finding a way to mix it up. I feel like um, directors to to certain extents are, are all, all I mean, ideally being that way, you know, or even like say like Wes Anderson, you hear him talk about his, his movies. It's like, it's like he feels like each movie is an entirely new thing, even though people criticize him a lot for doing the same thing over and over again. There's, there's nuance within that, that, that is, is new ground. You know, I actually, I think that I, I would say that anybody who argues that Anderson hasn't changed it up with his films is only looking at his set design and not, (laughs) and not his movies because I mean like Moonrise Kingdom is a, is a very big departure from what he does prior to that with Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is obviously a huge departure because it's animation. But Grand Budapest Hotel is my favorite of his films primarily because it's this huge step into a very, very dark territory that's not particularly humorous. By the time you get to the end of Grand Budapest Hotel, it is rather depressing yeah. <laughs> because you've gone on this journey and like, oh, oh yeah, right. Ray Fine's character is just going to be brutally assaulted and murdered by these these nazi stand-in police like spoiler alert (laughs) yeah yeah sorry for for anybody who didn't watch one of the best films of 2014 i'm sorry yeah also Um, are we are we are we doing spoilers with uh with summertime or are we withholding oh we oh, oh we will as we get into the plot here um so spoiler alert for summertime which i think is uh, unlike Grand Budapest Hotel, which had much more has much more exposure in this day and age, Summertime is a film that was kind of not difficult to find, but it was disappointing how little availability there is for um, copies beyond DVD because there's no real Blu-ray attached. There is a DVD put out by Criterion that is still available. It's one of their first or more earlier uh, issues on DVD. And then um, you can also get it on Amazon Prime for rent or I'm assuming also at this point the Criterion channel. Um, that's Maybe. a channel that I have yet to subscribe to, but I'm going to now Zach. because I've become, a, <laughs> I've become a fan of Mizuguchi's films. Yeah. So now I'm going to get the Criterion channel, Mr. Strelick. <laughs> like, Why are you not... <laughs> <laughs> because I am a physical media nut. Do you know? Oh, sidetrack for That's a second. True. That do, is true. Do, do you know, Mr. Strelick, how long I had to wait for The Irishman to be available <laughs> in my fucking hands? Oh, no. <laughs> it, was, it was too long. It was too long. That, that Netflix stream lags. And I needed The Irishman in my hands. <laughs> that beautiful, beautiful three and a half hour film about how men are terrible. I needed it. <laughs> They're they're doing the Criterion um, release for that, aren't they? I, I, I know. I, yeah, that's that's what I'm alluding to. I got it. The day oh, it dropped. Hell the yeah. day after the day it dropped, I went after work. I zoomed over to that barn.
Barnes and Nobles, and I slapped my receipt on the counter and said, "Here, give me that shit now." <laughs> well, you know, Zach, you are, uh, you know, true, true to form. You are characteristic, characteristically very, very uh, 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 hard, uh, mean to yourself, <laughs> but also the reward. <laughs> You know, you you treat yourself with the aesthetic, the vibes. Yep, and I, and, I do. and and I do applaud that. But <laughs> oh, summertime's you. also available right now on HBO Max, Criterion Channel, yes. and uh, Canopy, which is a beautiful service offered by some library systems. So look into your local library system and see if it yes. does uh, an affiliation with Canopy, where you get yeah, uh, I think it's my, nine uh, free streams a month. Um, Canopy is uh, something that my library is connected to, and I, I've tried it out. It is very interesting. Like I didn't realize they were doing that, and I was like, "That's pretty fucking neat." It's beautiful. Um, I love just a brief one sentence sidetrack. I love the library system. Please use it to its fullest. Libraries are beautiful. We love them. Yes, that is um, that is an undoubted fact. Like they're they're going to struggle just as much as everybody else is going to struggle. Support your local library, kids. Give a hoot. <laughs> get a book from them (laughs) yeah pay your pay your overdue fines yes oh oh wow that uh uh, one last sidetrack before we get into summertime (laughs) Um, i i I re-signed up for a library card last year and they were going through they were going through everything and they're like oh yeah no all of our um uh, all of our overdues have been eliminated um, we just asked that you return the book, and I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, I, I, why did you do that? And it was like, because we didn't have enough people coming to check out stuff and supporting us. And I'm like, God damn it! Like, <laughs> me too, man. I, I heard that. I was like, how are you gonna? Oh man. Oh god, no. Yeah, support your local library, folks. But anyway, summertime. Um, summertime. <laughs> so s- summertime is um. Uh, it's an interesting little piece in this respect that it's a it is as we've been discussing it's like the first real dip in the toe for David Lean into an epic sphere of sorts, but it's also extremely intimate. And when I say intimate, I mean intimate. Uh, the uh, absolutely the, the big thing that I want to go into on the production of this film is that it is the final real collaboration Mister Lean has. With the with the very noted producer Alexander Corda, um, now Corda is a uh, a gentleman that I uh, admire greatly because he produced, amongst other things, The Third Man and the fourth greatest film of all time, To Be or Not to Be, by Ernst Lubitsch. Hmm. Um, but um, but it, at this point, Corda was. Um, receiving capital to make films um, through London Films Corp. He received a five million pound investment um, from City Investing Corporation of New York, and he was able to keep producing films and whatnot. Uh, And among those films was Summertime. Now, Summertime was a project that it first originated as a play uh, by noted playwright Arthur Lorenz. Um, And... Arthur Lorenz has been discussed before on the Shamley silhouette because he, amongst other things, wrote the scripts for rope. Uh, And uh, so we've had discussions with this gentleman before and (laughs) rope is uh, a, a, a film as we've discussed on the show that, he delves. He he dips his toe into very tricky territory. Um, obviously, with rope, it's about murder and repressed homosexuality. <laughs> In summertime, it's a little bit less abrasive, um, <laughs> but it's still rather scandalous for this for the era. Well, wasn't um, it? But, wasn't it called uh, the time of the cuckoo? 
Yes, Time of the Cuckoo was, was the ori- was the play itself, which originally um, was designed for um, Shirley Booth to play the Hepburn role, and she played that role in 1952's Broadway production of it, and even won the Tony Award for leading actress for that performance. Now, now here comes the part where the film rights are bandying about. Producer Hal Wallace, um, who we have discussed before on the Casablanca episode, at this point he's independent. One of the things he has expressed interest is purchasing the, purchasing the film rights to this, but he felt that Shirley Booth was too old for the role, and he actually envisioned not only Hepburn, but Ezio Pinza in the role um, of uh, our, our lead, Renato. Uh, so uh, eventually the rights are acquired by Ilya Luper, um, and in conjunction with uh, Corda's London Film Corps um, is how Lean gets involved. But uh, Lopere actually wanted to get Anatole Litvak to direct this film. And Litvak has been discussed briefly. He will be discussed further because he directed the ultimate new movie that finally addressed the Nazi menace with Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Uh, so, But Litvak does not get this job. Bleh, done. Um, and then uh, th- there was a lot of other people who were negotiating um, for for this job, but it ultimately... Wasn't uh, Rossellini thinking about doing it with uh, Rossellini? Yes, he was, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how Bergman. he would have found the time between uh, you know. <laughs> well, if Ber, oh, you know what? If Him Bergman had been in the movie, it would have been if if Bergman had been in this movie. I don't know if I would love it as much, but I wouldn't believe it any less because she could totally pull it off. I would um, love to see it. I don't know if it would be better or worse. I would just love to see it. Oh yeah. I mean and when you watch her Rossellini films, like you are like she worked well with him, yeah. obviously, for I've seen, for multiple reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um but uh, I, Rossellini though, I I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to picture what his version would be to be honest. Like it would probably be black and white. When? Yeah, definitely, probably be black and white, and I think it would probably be less idyllic than this movie ends up becoming. I don't know how Rossellini would paint the picture that Lean is able to picture with this film. That's because true. it just seems like Rossellini, like Rossellini, when I think Rossellini, I think Italian neorealism, very honest. And yeah. David Lean makes a movie that is honest while being very, very dreamlike. David and Lean's so, like, a romantic. Yes, David Lean's. I, I love the cinema. Although Mr. Strelick, I Rossellini might be more Romanesque, so in that way, he might be more romantic. <laughs> Ooh, it, oh, you mean it could have been dirtier? <laughs> like, no, I mean like like Rome. Oh yeah, like Rome. Stupid, just, like, stupid. Attempt <laughs> no, 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 wordplay. No. Um, uh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> No, never, never apologize for a good pun, John. Well, like, I'm never s- do it. <laughs> well, if if you look into, <laughs> thank you, Zach. If you look into the the the, the journey that this uh, that this play went on, just like uh, like the literary journey that it went on, you, I I wonder at what point Rosaline would have come in. Maybe he would have done a much more faithful adaptation of the play uh, as it as it was written, but but it was. Uh, through the journey of it, I mean, it was rewritten by who, you know, there was multiple people hired to rewrite did, it. David did, Lean didn't like Donald that. O- Donald, Ar- uh, Donald Ogden Steers, who was very known for the Philadelphia story and uh, Tarnished Lady and Love Affair, mm-hmm. was one of the people that worked with uh, uh, 
people like Lean and um, Nor- uh, uh, the producer Norman Spencer, um, and also uh, S.N. Berman, um, uh, who was a writer for The New Yorker. Um, but they didn't like what they were ended up doing, and that's when when Lean gets himself involved in this project, he eventually brings in H.E. Bates to collaborate with him. The novelist, um, right? Yes, novelist H.E. Bates, um, best known for Love for Lydia, The Darling Buds of May, and My Uncle Silas, um, of books I've never read before. <laughs> so that's another piece of homework that just eh, you know, like I gotta, we're we're technically in quarantine. I need to read. Uh, and, and not just books about the Marx Brothers stage career. Like that's, <laughs> that's a great th- use of your time, but I've done stuff like that way too often. I need to actually read some fiction. Um, <laughs> You're a busy man, Zach. I mean, I, I, I don't know if look, you, you got time. Look, I need to, I need to know what day Groucho Marx graced the Denver streets <laughs> on the Keith Orpian circuit. This is important, damn it. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. I'm not going to argue with yeah. you on that. I, I also need to know what Jack Benny ate for dinner, but that's another, that's another obsession that's never going to go away. <laughs> um, now, here's what I find interesting within um, Corda being involved is, is that as this is getting to the near the end of the career. Uh, for Corda, because he would end up dying of a heart attack not too long uh, after oh, this no. at the age of 62. Um, but Corda was a very, very prominent figure throughout Hollywood history for uh, across the gamut, working briefly in Austrian and German um, uh, films during the silent era and then going to Hollywood from 1926 until 1930 and then taking another brief period out and coming back in amongst the things that Corda did. Like I said, the third man is, is something he ends up doing as a collaboration with David O. Selznick to create. How, 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 how loosely defined is the word collaboration when you're talking about David O. Selznick? Oh, that's a good question. And it's an answer that I know all too well. (laughs) It means that he does whatever the fuck I tell him to. (laughs) But he, he, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I don't, uh, my impression of it is, is that it seems like Corda would have much more control because I don't know how Selznick had so many things in the pot boiling. Yeah, that it would it would it wouldn't surprise me if that was one where he had the least interference, um, because like at this point, he's also at the time the third man is being made. He's courting Jennifer Jones. He's doing a lot of stuff that drives him crazy eventually, not the least of which is among his last corroborations with Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So I think the third man was like the least of his worries. I think mostly the third man has to be a situation where Selznick provided further backing yeah. um, so that Corda could get it done. And and you're talking about Carol Reed, too. I doubt Carol Reed was going to give up much of his frame. So Yeah, um, and, and that's, a, that's a, what would be considered like a B movie. Yes, yeah, well, a, a B movie, but with a beautiful speech. On a Ferris wheel. Uh, oh yeah, it's only it's only oh, in hindsight that everyone realizes oh, those B movies were actually the A plus movies. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A lot of your A pictures from the golden age of Hollywood end up actually being the B movies because they just um, they're not as bountiful as the actual A pictures, like a Third Man or. A Magnificent Ambersons. Fun fact, Magnificent Ambersons was considered a B-picture by the studio that put it out because they screwed over Orson Welles. That's a discussion for another day. I'm not going to go on that rant. <laughs> uh, but anyway, when when Lean is eventually brought on to the project, 
by the insistence of Corda, Corda's like, look, you got to, you got to come down. You've got to, you, you, you go into Italy. It'll be wonderful, David. David, you've got to, you've, you've got to do it. <laughs> it would be <laughs> fucking great for you. Well, David was um, going through a, a divorce at the time. Yeah, because it was from Ann Todd, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he that that relationship was not so great. He stole her from a from a, uh, another man, and then. Uh, <laughs> he said that she he, he said that she used him uh, for her sexual gratification, which is interesting because it's like he's known as a womanizer and she's the one using ah, him. Interesting. Just well, the man had six wives, five I divorces. Know. That is like that's a streak. I think John Houston had less wives than David Lane. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like Ingmar Bergman territory, but um. Well, to fill in more of the, the, the personal aspects of, of David Lean's choice to kind of go with this is, you know, uh, filming uh, Passionate Friends, he filmed some of those segments in France. Uh, really? So yeah. then so then was that what got him out of his, like, that was uh, the first stupor time. from a divorce? Or, uh, no, and no. That's like, <laughs> no, that's, like, that's, I just need to that's, go to Paris. <laughs> that's a movie that he met in, uh, Todd hmm. on. Oh, okay. Um, so this so that wasn't his so so summertime isn't even his first true excursion outside well, of the barriers of Britain. Yeah, it's his first time filming entirely on location. There was a, there was a couple segments that were filmed for Passionate Friends and he and he loved them. He adored that uh, idea of like leaving Britain and filming on location. So the opportunity to direct uh this film, he demanded to film all on location yep and um so there's a little bit in here um so uh uh norman spencer the associate producer on the film um he said that lean didn't care much for the script that corda had shown him um but corda um uh, this is the quote and corda said which is sort of great of uh sort of great man stuff he always did why don't you go to venice have a look around and see what you think and Lean saw the city and said, "Shit, everything needs to be done here." <laughs> like, <laughs> Hell yeah! And that was not um, that was not particularly well liked by the studio, but of course not. Corda had his back, and eventually United Artists had his back, so they were able to commence with filming on summertime or as it's actually known in the uk summer madness which sounds much more like a uh an 80s uh an 80s camp comedy and not (laughs) and not an elegant movie about a romance that is forbidden um summertime honestly it's one of those few times where i'm like no the the american title is way better (laughs) like it is yeah yeah i I read a quote where cordo was like that was like uh he hated the title of uh the time of the cuckoo yeah <laughs> he, he was just like it didn't make any sense apparently in the play uh, the cuckoo uh comes in the summertime to europe ah and okay. and, and its cry is like the season of love you know but ah, gotcha but 
the, you're not going to know that like what well, they're going to take time out in the beginning to be like hey this is what's up with the cuckoo in Europe and this is why it's relevant <laughs> I just want I just want David Lean on film going like hi I'm David Lean I'm here to tell you about the cuckoo and how it relates to today's play the time of the cuckoo <laughs> like, yeah so show him with a book in front of him <laughs> explaining it to the audience <laughs> yeah his own version of uh, of uh, Hitchcock's kind of cameo <laughs> yeah <laughs> to talk good about evening. Uh, and, and, and well it's a good thing he didn't do that because Hitchcock, I'm sure he saw Summertime and uh, for a lot of reasons went, motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Like that goddamn asshole stole everything from me. <laughs> we'll get into it. Because <laughs> I like, saw some shots he... where I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Uh, and it's in the places you're not going to expect, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But yeah, no, he... The the title works better, I would yeah, argue. It, summertime. It, it conjures up that romantic imagery. It's great. Um, and, and it and it's one of those things where I, you know, when I was watching Summertime, I was very much reminded of um, the Linkletter before trilogy. Oh, wow. um, more more specifically before Sunrise, and just the idea of the whole relationship that blossoms under strange circumstances like international oh, yeah. travel, international um, uh, international romance, man. Yeah, interna- <laughs> international sexy time, as, yeah. it, as it's known it's as it's known here and in the Bond movies, apparently. I mean, that's um, what everybody <laughs> dreams of. You know, oh yeah, no. That mean, I mean, that's why the Bond movies were made. You, you <laughs> got action and you got international sexy. Time. I feel like the the sexy. T- well, actually, no. You're right. That's probably like the, the thrust <laughs> of those movies. Damn it. Yeah, yeah. It's all about sex, John. Don't you understand? <laughs> the that? action is secondary. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. The 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 jet packs don't mean a fucking thing compared to pushy galore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nobody but, talks about Q's inventions. They talk about the Bond no, girls. I I do because I give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's. I'm going to go through the production credits here on um, Summertime, and we're going to jump into this plot. Let's do it. And and as we do, there are some there are some interesting tidbits of the production that come within this. Um, but th- it it helps to kind of go th- through them by plot because there's a big one involving Miss Hepburn that um, <laughs> that I was like, I'm surprised that she spoke as highly of David Lean as she did after this. Oh. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, we're going directed by David Lean, uh, produced by Elia Loper, written by H.E. Bates and David Lean, based on the play by Arthur Lorenz, starring Catherine Hepburn, Rosano Brazzi, Darren McGavin, Issa Miranda, uh, Mary Aldon, uh, Jane Rose, McDonald Park, Jeremy Spencer, Andre Moliere, and Gino Caravelli, who are both uncredited. Those last two are uncredited. Um, and, um, Gaetano Artero plays Maro. (laughs) Um, and, uh, we've got a a beautiful score by Alessandro Ciogini and cinematography by Jack Hildyard, um, who I'm gonna, I'm just gonna jump right out and say this. I've never been more entranced by imagery that I, whose work I did not know of until, it was too late because he has direct he he was the cinematography of two films i've seen not for reasons involving this show he he was the dp on the message and lion of the desert which were produced by mustafa produced and directed by mustafa akkad mm-hmm. and the only reason i've seen those films is because mustafa akkad is the 
uh, the uh, the the father of the Halloween franchise <laughs> because he's the one who owned the rights and his his son uh, Malik now owns the rights to him as well. So I did not realize I had watched Jack Hildyard work before until I was like, oh yeah, Lion in the Desert. <laughs> um, he also did and, a Hobson's Choice, didn't he? Yes. Okay. Then that's right. Then I have seen. Other one, yep. Hobson's Choice and Bridge Run the River Quiet. Holy shit! Okay, never mind. Jack Hildyard has always been in my life. I just never realized it before. Well, um, he didn't. He, yeah, he didn't. He I, was he even nominated for the Academy Award for cinematography this he, year? He won Definitely the Academy Award. He won. No, he wasn't nominated this year, but he would win the cinematography award for Bridge Under River Kwai. Uh, which, there you go. Duh. <laughs> like, <laughs> and actually, he also did a Lawrence Olivier's film Henry V, which I have seen. So yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, and uh, he's underrated. And he worked. Yeah, very uh, or under discussed, more likely. Like, I don't think you could uh, overrate him or underrate him. He's perfectly rated. We just don't to talk about him. Because I and I'm and I'm part of the problem, um, and then the editor is Peter Taylor, which editing is very important in a David Lean film. No matter what David Lean film you are discussing, if you think of David Lean, you think of editing because that's all they talk about in everything regarding Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, because his transitions. How yes, how could you not? And his transitions in this film. Uh, are are good. They're not like they're, they're not what I think of when I think of David Lean necessarily, but they're they're there. Yeah. Um, and um, but we'll we'll jump into this plot right now because a lot of shit happens and some silly shit happens in it too. But it's but it's all adorable and wonderful, and I can't wait to get into it because we're about to embark uh, through the eyes of the adventurous Akron, Ohio uh, native Jane Hudson, played by Katherine Hepburn. She is on a train, and she is getting uh, she is arriving in Venice, Italy, after her voyage. And right off the bat, we realize that she is the first Instagrammer because <laughs> she is taking photos of everything she sees. <laughs> oh, my God. Eight millimeter uh, uh, film. She's taking yeah, home, a, home a, videos of it. Yeah, yeah. She didn't need that story filter that we all like to, that retro film filter that we all <laughs> like to use on it Instagram. It was there. She, it was there. She had it. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like, this is going to go to all my followers. You hear me? <laughs> oh, my God. She's so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so wonderful. Oh, I've never seen that in a movie. Like, like oh, someone yeah. make use of like consumer level eight millimeter camera like you would. You would. Yeah. And it, and it seems like that's something that I don't see a lot in films of that era. Like, I mean, I'm trying to think of an actual exception and I can't think of one off the top of my head. So this was just it was interesting to see it. And and not only is she doing that, she is she is directing. She's yes. not just a photographer. She's a director. This movie is also about directors, guys, <laughs> so vicariously, because she is directing this person she is traveling with to hold the magazine he's reading a certain way. And I I don't think I'd ever want to be told how to do that, <laughs> but regard, no matter if it's Catherine Hepburn or not. <laughs> um, although, get Catherine Hepburn in front of me, and maybe I'll change my mind because I'll be like, first of all, how are you still here? <laughs> yes. But also, I mean, I, you, you, I, I don't understand. You couldn't say no to that woman. She was no, 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 no. Zach, I need so you strong. to. I need you to. So I need you to lean. I need you to lean forward. Lean forward, and I'd be like, "Yes, Miss Hepburn. Yes, yes, absolutely." Yes, I listen. You, you put your feet up on D- Dick Cavett's chairs <laughs> as you did her interview with him. I will listen to you 
any time of the day. Um, that interview is great. If you've never seen that Cabot interview, watch it. She is just, she does not give a fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, but she is on the train. Uh, her lifelong, has, her lifelong dream is to come to Venice. So it's, it's, yes. uh, it's, it's obvious she's been, she's thought about this for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this has been a dream of hers, which who of, who of us hasn't dream, dreamed of international travel? And I've never been abroad, but if I um, uh, had gone abroad, I'd be like, wow, it's it's great. I'm finally going to see Britain or <laughs> Ireland, you know, like, you know, like, I mean. Where would you uh, go? Anyway, I, I, where would I go? Probably, probably uh, the UK. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'd want to see that my grandfather related to. I'd also want to go to Scotland to find out where he got his cap that I now wear daily. Oh, um, so you, <laughs> so you would go for like a family reasons. Yes. Yeah. Family reasons. Yeah. And well, and also the Sherlock Holmes Museum is in the UK. I got to visit my boy Sherlock Holmes's house. There you go. Um, Baker Street. Uh, and then beyond that, I'd probably go to Canada just to get some Tim Hortons and then leave pretty quickly after that. <laughs> that is very feasible, um, Zach. You can yeah, do that. Very, I I know I can. I just haven't. I haven't got bothered to do it yet. <laughs> you know, I you know, knowing my luck, I'll go right as the moment that they close the border because America really has shit itself, <laughs> and that's when I'll be like, well, I guess I'm Canadian now. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be stuck with uh, a plethora of Tim Hortons. John, John, I've become extremely polite overnight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also David Cronenberg is a god here. Like like not even like not even a cinematic god. Like he is literally their savior. Like it's really fucking weird. <laughs> um, I, I, I would any, I would be really interested to see what sort of religion would have David Cronenberg <laughs> as their savior. <laughs> well, each year somebody has to melt their face in, yeah. order, to, <laughs> in order to appease a Canadian. I wouldn't uh, want to be a part server. of that religion and i definitely wouldn't want to watch <laughs> no oh, well, no but i love that, I, I love david cronenberg but <laughs> i i do too and i i you know what i don't think i'd join but i would watch the ceremony <laughs> oh yeah well, there you go. uh but anyway she she gets off the train and she's immediately uh thrust into the language barrier she yeah obviously she's not she doesn't speak fluent italian she 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 speaks basic um Webster's Dictionary for Translation it, Italian. Yeah. Um, and she's surprised to learn that a boat uh, is a bus in Italy, uh, or at least in Venice in this case, because that's how she is able to get to her um, uh, her her lodgings. Um, and she goes on this boat, which is a, vapre- a Vaporetto. Um, and when she's on this, uh, this, this bus boat, she meets two of the... Um, most American Americans I've seen oh my in a movie since uh, To Catch a Thief. <laughs> um, hey, hey, hey. He stole from me. We'll get to it, Hitch. We'll get to it. Um, <laughs> but no, he meets Lloyd and Edith, played by McDonald Park and Jane Rose. Um, and they are they are touristy AF. They're F- amazing. They are, they're wonderful. It's like, Don't get me wrong. They're wonderful. It's like if, <laughs> if you ever wondered what your grandparents looked like when they went on... You know, or your great grandparents, or something, when they went on like a vacation, that's what they are. Yeah, exactly. It's just like they glimpse are... into like this. The, that's something about like this movie in particular that I was drawn to so much was like it's almost like an, an anthropological view of like like 1950s American tourism is a mm-hmm. world that I do not know. And and this and this movie is a is just a beaut. It's like it's like watching 
a different culture in in a way like it like and it is a different culture it's it's just it's just the the the, the details of, of 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 everything her luggage how how it's like it, it, she she's alarmed a little bit that that these <laughs> porters are grabbing her luggage and bringing it to this uh this boat you know that, that and she doesn't know what's going on but she's just kind of going along for the ride it's, yeah, and this is and actually this is also the establishment of Lean really digging into the um the visual sites of Italy. Like this is where we're really going to start to see him giving us taking us into a world that uh especially an American audience has never experienced um and or or has only seen in photographs. But something to keep in mind within this. So this film is released in 1955. Uh, to Catch a Thief is released the year before. Both films deal with international travel in the regard of a post-war world mm-hmm. um, where majority of your tourists are coming for one of two reasons. One, the country's now open again and isn't under fascist rule. Uh, two, um, you also have soldiers returning to the sites of the war. And one of the two is happening within that sphere. What's interesting to see is how two different British directors handle international travel at this point in time. Now, Hitchcock obviously does it through the Hitchcock lens of like, well, yeah, but there's going to be a fucking robbery and Cary Grant and Grace Kelly are going to eat chicken and beer uh, off of the fucking cliffside. Um, (laughs) But David Lean is a little bit more like, no, 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 no. Just very nice and quiet. We're going to see the sights. We're going to see everything around it Venice has to offer. Well, that's that's what's so interesting about it is like for being a adaptation of a play this the city itself is is absolutely a character in this film which i think is the big thing that lean brings to the proceedings apart from whatever he does in the writer's room to touch things up because i feel i feel like lean this is another reason why i'm angry that i haven't watched any more lean movies than i have because he does have a great ability to transport you into the world that you're about to live in for the next hour to five hours. Um, But also he provides perspective with his characters and his camera to put us in the world, period. Um, I'm going to jump like a a bit ahead a quick second (laughs) where when she gets off the boat and she goes to, um, she's going through the narrow uh, alleyways, the camera is perspective the perspective of the camera is such that it 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 encapsulates you in that alleyway to this point where I'm like okay I am entering this world that she is now about to discover too um and th- and the same thing happens on the boat we get a lot of imagery of of, of the, the the different boats passing by we see that there's a traffic system uh unlike America the green light is on top and the red light's on the bottom mm-hmm. um yeah yellow still stays in the middle cuz that's never changing um it'd be weird if it did yeah. and uh it, it it would just be off um and the, uh, the actually the american tourists are interesting because they provide like a counterpoint to her experience obviously but they also like explain like how 
Jane's probably uh, pr- uh, probably uh, expecting this trip to go along touristy lines, and it's exemplified to my mind by the way Lloyd and Edith discuss. Like, no, the travel agency they planned our entire trip point for point. We have no no way to be free in our travel whatsoever. Oh they've got God. us on this rigid schedule, and I was like, hearing them rattle of all, off all the places they've been to is like Jesus Christ. What? Yeah, like the travel agency isn't messing around, dude. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, they're, and it's like everything is planned out. Like they're, like every part of their day, everything is like even their free time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They get two hours of free time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and they're like, they kind of do what they you want. know that you're in Italy, like, <laughs> <laughs> like the, a, a, a pillar of civilization, and you are letting the travel agency in. Oh God, where are they from? They're from um, Indiana, is it? Like they're. Uh, they're 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 going to let that agency dictate their entire Italian experience. Yeah, that's got to be sad. I mean, in some they're way. they're ha- they're stoked about it. They're, I feel like that that was kind of a how things were. You know, I mean, yeah. it's interesting how travel agencies kind of <laughs> aren't really a thing anymore. Oh you, no, no, you can book your own. Do you remember? Do you remember the last time you ever saw one in in person? I remember, like we used, my dad used to get plane tickets through a United Airlines travel agency hub yeah. that's not too far from where we live, and now it's a and now it's a nail place. That's yeah. fucking weird. Um, yeah, and, in my small in my uh, small town that I grew up in, there was a there was like a travel agency like in the town, and they and they would and. The AAA even did it. I remember, yeah. like they plan out your road trips and stuff, or other things that you had to do for international travel. Like it, it, it's a, it's a concept that doesn't exist anymore because I don't. I, I think the internet has provided your own version of a travel agency. Be like, here, here's yeah. the bars you go to, here's the clubs you go to. Yeah. Um, you don't and for need me, it. here's the, ci- yeah, it's like here's the cinemas you go to. Go to the Prince Charles Cinema when you go to Britain, Zach. I will. Thanks, travel guide on Google. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, so, but anyway, shit, they. Amidst their travel on that boat, though, dude, also firemen on boats. That's mm. fucking cool. Oh, yeah. That's some. That's a film I wish would happen. <laughs> Fireboat. Fi- Fireboat. It's about. It's basically ladder forty nine, but with boats. <laughs> and and you you can imagine that they're highly effective because they have an endless supply of water below them. Yeah, oh, that's what I thought too. I'm like, are they just literally t- putting a pump down through the boat? <laughs> just, just pumping out up. there. Yeah, it's just like no, no, no. Italian water. Got to take out Italian fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I take that back. It would be backdraft, but with boats because ladder forty nine is garbage. But backdraft. Corrected that. Thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It's the only good thing Billy Baldwin's ever done is backdraft. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, she gets off the boat. Again, we get that perspective shot. And she is brought to her, her hotel. She is greeted by Signora uh, Fiorini, played by Issa Miranda. Fiorini. And she's... She Fiorini, and she is a widow um, who has converted her home into uh, a hotel. Her husband and, died in uh, World War Two, so that yes. also reflects a sort of post-war situation that's kind of in the background of 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 and, Europe. And it also is interesting how she describes Italian custom and culture, knowing that fact because. She like it doesn't war aside. It doesn't change the cultural attitude of of Italy. It seems in terms of like, you know, she talks about in the scene later on on the patio where you're talking about, 
you know, in Italy, you you feed a man a meal, and in America, you feed him pills. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to know what kind of American meal that was. I, I guess she's talking about diet pills, but I'm thinking like oxycotton, fucking yeah. like, you know, like like terrible stuff, like decongestants up the wazoo, because I'm sure they got nasal problems. And I mean, that the, relates to that uh, another movie yeah. that I suggested for this conversation. Uh, uh, was it lo- uh, bigger than life, larger than life? The Nicholas Ray movie. Have you seen that one? No, but I've been told about it. Um, I've I've only seen it once, but I, I mean, I, I I don't I don't know much about it, but I think it's around the same time, uh, suburban yeah. America, and he's dealing with uh with with pills and and pharmaceuticals and stuff. So the, I'll tell you that there's a the, the, can, a modern day one that I can bring to it is Suburbicon, but Suburbicon's not really worth discussing <laughs> yeah. in that way. Well, there's also like if you if you look into it, uh, there was like a big industry of house you know a big population of housewives both in europe and in america right i think primarily america that were just essentially taking speed like the doctor yeah it was mother's little little helper in a way so right like, which is which is not too dissimilar from the same amount of speed they were feeding folks like judy garland at mgm exactly uh, but like you know you're right though like that 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 difference in like perspectives on american visitors because jane is kind of also like i i got this feeling especially when she goes out into the patio after being introduced to her hotel room and which is smuggling in her she's so a beautiful smugg- she's an that that hotel yeah. the, her room everything it's just so so beautiful i want i want to go dr- the the drawing room alone. Oh I, I'd camp out in that drawing room, man. It'd be fucking dope. Have a sleepover in there with some blankets with a lady. It'd be nice. Right like, over you know, the canal. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yo, dude. Oh, that. This movie does appeal to the romantic in me, oh, um, which which is which is sometimes hard to do because when I see romance in movies, I'm like, that's garbage. But then, like, <laughs> but then I watch stuff like this, and I'm like, ah. Well, if it's happening you know, to Catherine what? Hepburn, you gotta believe it, you know, because she's oh, so I, she's so strong. It's like if something's getting to her, you know. I'm so fierce. No man can tame me. What's a hello? Yeah. Is that Rosano Brazzi? Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and of course but, she. Like, of course she has her whiskey, right? Yeah, she's smug. She's an alcohol. She's she's a pro he. She's like <laughs> she she's smuggling American whiskey in there and she's mixing it with Italian vermouth. What it's the, the heck? That you know, not not now. I mean like r- be honest. Are you really going to give a shit smuggling whiskey into the country? Like, it's not going to affect the frog population or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's just going to get the fish drunk if she accidentally spills it into the river. Yeah. (laughs) um, But, like, regardless, though, she she has an American fierce, independent spirit and attitude. And with that scene out in the patio, she does look like, because she refuses to go to um, dinner with uh, Fiorini, she is it looks like she's content to just sit there and drink alone for her entire trip <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> she doesn't look like she's she's it's almost like now that she's there she can't believe it and she doesn't know how to respond to her trip <laughs> like i feel like i um, feel like that's the feeling you get watching Catherine Hepburn you know when you watch yeah. it and you're like okay this is like like she's strong in there but then very quickly you realize like oh no she's She's very lonely. Yeah, she's very alone. What David Lean does with space in this film to project her loneliness is fucking remarkable. Like oh I God. I've never seen a film of this era 
project it quite the way he does. Um, I, I mean, like, I, I could say Citizen Kane, but that's, like, an obvious answer. But, like, if we're talking to, like, a film you're not talking about on the constant, Summertime is one of those ones that will surprise you. I actually, like, got a lot of vibes out of it from, like, whenever we do a modern romance film, isolationism is a kind of a key thing to it because it projects a lot of the characters that we see on screen. Like, I guess a recent example might be Marriage Story because there's a lot of moments where people are left alone in Marriage Story and Bombbox sitting on them for long periods of time. Um, Absolutely. And, and, the, and the, before, the Before Trilogy has moments of those too, but... Um, I, well, let's not leave the patio yet before introducing ourselves to the seemingly horny uh, uh, painter uh, Eddie Yeager and oh, his wife Phil. Guy. <laughs> this fucking asshole. He's not an <laughs> asshole yet, but we're gonna get to it. He's a he's like dick the, and a uh, half. He's the uh, you know the the Hemingway type you know. <laughs> American, uh, American. I'm know, glad American you Paris made that comparison. <laughs> yep. No, 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 no. I, uh, I was never a success. I, I only sold one or two paintings, and then I had a fist fight with F. Scott Fitzgerald, and everything fucking uh, happened. Yeah. Uh, who wants? To, uh, give me more. <laughs> give me more American whiskey, Kate. I know you brought it on your fucking boat. Eddie Yeager to start God. threatening to punch people. <laughs> <laughs> just see Darren McGavin just fighting the air. <laughs> Seriously, um, he's got. But he's it, definitely has those vibes. Yeah, and we oh, when 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 uh because the, the, they're on the patio, they're all talking. So it's it's uh it's Lloyd and Edith, Eddie and Phil, Jane and Fiorini, and Eddie or and, and Lloyd and Edith are doubling down on their American tourism to the point when they leave and say Arriva Derci they sound like they are the grandparents of Aldo Rain from Inglorious Bastards because they are <laughs> yeah. emphasizing their Italian because they're so Arriva proud Dirty. that they figured it out. Arriva da- Grazie. Grazie. <laughs> Just waiting for one of them to go, Dominic de Coco. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the thing is, they're just, they're just so, uh, you know, I could see how someone, you know, would be annoyed with them, but it's just so quaint. I'm, I'm just like, I just find it adorable. Oh, yeah. It's super cute. Like it's not. It's not annoying. Like it's not like. It's not grating on my nerves. I'm just. Yeah. It's so apparent that if you don't mention it, it's like. It's like Werner Herzog says about that tape with with Ted, Timothy Treadwell. It's gonna be the elephant in the room the rest of your conversation if you don't bring up their irreverent dare cheese. Um, and they. And I, I will. And, I will. But, I, I should expect no less than for you, Zach, to <laughs> compare tourists in 1950s Italy to a man being eaten by a bear. (laughs) (laughs) You don't understand the the cruel world of nature and the cruel world of travel for international purposes of tourism. I I am going to finish this voiceover and then go hang out with Baby Yoda on the set of The Mandalorian. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Oh, God. Watch Grizzly Man, guys, and get frustrated every year like I do. That's my hate watch movie each year (laughs) because I sit down and I go, don't fucking interact with the bear. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, he did it for like nine years successfully, so you can't say he was totally crazy. (laughs) It's such a conflicting movie. I understand, John, but I yell at the movie each year, hoping to God that Timothy will listen to me. 
but anyway, we're not here to talk about Timothy Treadwell. <laughs> we're here to talk about Catherine Hepburn and her Italian journey. Now, she uh, actually, before, one of the first people she does encounter within uh, her Italian travels is Mauro. Oh, charmer. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, guy. what a, oh yeah, he's a smooth operator, this Mauro. Uh, he, uh, she, and, and he is what do you basically. Call that? He's like he's like a he's like a a boy who just like helps tourists. Is it was there like, was that like a job? I, what was I, what was he doing? He, I like, think he's literally just a street urchin. Like like he doesn't really have a home. He kind of wanders. He sells what he can. He's like a it's, panhandler it's very, who's like helpful. He sells her a he sells her a postcard, but then I was like, but she gives back the postcard, and I'm wondering like, was it a dirty postcard? Like, it was a fucking nudity on that thing. Like, you don't get a view of it really. <laughs> you never know. With and, 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 I love him though. He reminded me of. Did you see that? Um, what was that show? The um, Aziz Ansari show. Oh, um, Master of None. Master of None. I think like the second uh, season, the first episode, he's in like Italy, and he's he is hanging out with this uh, an Italian boy. Really, I haven't seen Master of None yet. Um, yeah, I, but now I've got to check it out then to and see. It's, what... <laughs> it's it's like oh okay. I I wonder <laughs> if that I wonder if that was a trope that they yeah. that he just picked up on, or if he specifically took that from this movie. You're gonna hate where I where my mind went because whenever I see a street urchin right near a hotel, I immediately think hostel or hostel part two, and I'm like, no, don't go in there, Kate. <laughs> What's I, beyond those sure. borders is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Eli Roth yeah, is definitely... a big fan of summertime. <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh you can god, see it that'd in, be... in everything he does. Oh yeah, His the performance Green Inferno. is uh, oh. the Bear Jew is very. <laughs> Akin to Catherine Hepburn, I think. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, fun fact: the Green Inferno is immediately inspired by Doctor Zhivago. You just don't. You're just not putting it together right away. Um, but <laughs> it's it's, it's she, doing the homework that really matters. Yes, exactly. And I will give Eli Roth credit any time that I possibly can because I think he gets shit around a lot. But um, anyway, Jane though she goes out on her own. And she, the lean is fucking beautiful with his photography here. She goes out to amongst other places, an entire plaza where she is, she is surrounded by couples. Like that's what it's like for me every day. When I go to, if I go out to a cafe and I see couples hanging around and I'm just left alone, like that's what it is. Um, like, and, and anybody can have that feeling too. Everybody's been alone. And imagine being in like, one of the most romantic places in the world. Oh, God. Yeah. Now, it's thankfully, I've never had that double down on that. Oh, <laughs> like, me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying but, to think like uh, Boulder's not romantic. Plaza, <laughs> oh, my God. The way the way he shot that is just beautiful. These just like these these tables just spread out in this, in yeah. this giant square of like these. It, this is just where these people congregate. At, at, it's a at, mass sea of activity. It's oh like a mass sea of activity. Like, and you're trying With to suss out. With all this quarantine, I'm just like going crazy. I'm like, I want to <laughs> be there. Wear a fucking mask, guys. It, when this comes, I mean, out, this, it, this episode should come out in about February. When this, yeah. w- if we're still having to wear masks, fucking wear them. <laughs> like, wear a mask. Wear a mask. But also, daydream about going back to 1955 Venice, Italy, and hanging out in this beautiful plaza that's shot. I mean, we haven't we haven't talked about it, but the Technicolor. 
I mean, come yes, on. the Technicolor. Yeah, now and and this is a time in Technicolor where the rules are starting to be loosened because Natalie Kalmus has less of a grip on <laughs> on the balls of the film industry because this is around the time also where folks like Houston are starting to muddle with the color. Lean, I'm trying to like, I'm not super color, uh, color, uh, color uh, appraisal wise. Like I can't, I can't tell exactly how Lean is doing it, but it is very similar to how Cardiff does stuff where it, it does feel like a painting, but it doesn't feel like a painting Cardiff would do. It feels oh, like, you know what I'm it, saying? Like it. Yes. Yes. It's like it's, reminiscent it, of that, like early color photography that, yeah. that was going on like in secret because nobody thought that anyone cared about color photography where it's just like right. the reds are just like un like what is going on it feels like it's sort of like a, a an advanced successor to that two-strip process that was primarily green and red and you have oh, yeah. the, the, oh, the reds dude. in here are super yeah <laughs> I, I i looked into like the history of technicolor man uh, that it's such a beautiful thing like they they were they were they they had the utmost of of integrity about what they did that it took them years and years to go from two strip to three strip because they had to do it yep. right and it's it's just the beauty of like these these this these people the the, the technicolor uh people is just like their their dedication to getting this as right as they possibly could the the like how long it took them in this endeavor to do this and 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 yep. and the beauty of it, and then now, you you will never. Odds are you'll never see a Technicolor movie filmed again. It's the 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 fact. No, you gone. won't. You can't. I, I mean, you like, can't make Technicolor it, it, film. You if can't I could recommend it. anything to you, John, if you makes me want to cry. If I, uh, John, if I could recommend anything to you, um, if I could recommend anything to you, it would be the, uh, on the Robin Hood, uh. DVD release with uh, the um, Errol Flynn Robin Hood. Yes, on that DVD there, and I got. I'm assuming on the Blu-ray as well. I don't own the Blu-ray, but uh, there's a documentary on Technicolor and its founders, the Calmuses, and specifically Natalie Calmus is very discussed in it because she was very much the Technicolor supervisor to the studios mm. uh, for all the for, for all the uh, for all the ball busting that she ensued on the industry. She did give a shit about the process. The the Technicolor films of a certain era look that way because of her. But filmmakers like Lean, but I, I would actually go more specifically to filmmakers like um, uh, Powell and Pressburger, who, with oh, stuff man. like the Red Shoes, really know how to emphasize those colors. And that's, again, Jack Cardiff, one of the greatest cinematographers to ever live, is one of those guys who knows how to paint with that lens. And arguably, Jack Hildyard does, too, because... These do. Th there are colors in this film that pop for the right reasons. There's nothing's oh. nothing's frivolous in the frame. Like I, nothing... I just I just adore Technicolor. Every, every time I see it, it just gives me so much joy. I I don't know yeah. what it is. Like I'm sure that at a certain point they're gonna come up with some uh, some digital intermediate that's gonna be able to perfectly replicate like the color saturation and and sort of like the the sharpness. Or lack thereof in in, yeah. in Technicolor, but it's just not going to be the same. I don't I don't know. There's no, just something it's, about it that just hits me somewhere deep, deep, deep. 
it's 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 I would argue it's the image you feel when you think of movies. Yes. And it's not not even just the word technicolor itself. It's the feel, it's the mood, it's the vibe. Like um not to I mean like I, I I'll I'll, br- I'll I'll bring up these two um Wizard of Oz. Yes. And Gone with the Wind are two films that exude technicolor. Now, obviously, if you've listened to the show, I'm a fan of one of those films and that's it. But I will never deny that the other one has some of the most beautiful photography you will ever see in your life in terms of the colors, in terms of the, in terms of the space. There is something about the technicolor process that has never been matched. When I speak of Powell and Pressburger, I mean you sit down and you watch The Red Shoes fucking now because that is a movie that is bursting with the best technicolor has to offer. And what's interesting is at this point in film history, folks are starting to fudge with it and one of the things i I mean like i will get into it with the houston series but houston actually finds a way to muddy it up to his storytelling advantage where the color is present but he's finding a way to make it feel like you are set in the era of moby dick um and that was something that uh and there was also something that when he did moulin rouge he was trying to create the fog of that environment in that era like that 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 parisian haze and technicolor did not like what he (laughs) what he was doing (laughs) and uh there's a i will not spoil the story now but there is a there is a thing that john houston says to the technicolor people that is some of the best shit i've ever heard in my life um but i to hear it (laughs) yeah anyway though he uh, well i'll 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 go ahead don't don't sweat don't sweat don't sweat (laughs) all right it's got to be safe i I love anticipation (laughs) do not spoil it i'm sorry anyone listening if this just uh, (laughs) aggravates you but you just continue to listen zach You'll don't, don't, oh, th- don't listen to John. He's <laughs> he's out of his damn mind. Listen to me, David Lean. Don't listen to this show. <laughs> um, but so anyway, we, it, uh, we'll have to get off of our Technicolor cloud though for a moment because we got to get back to the. Plot I don't ever want to leave the Technicolor cloud. <laughs> no, no, John. We got to go. We got to go. I'm sorry. I I waved bye to Natalie Kalmus and let's go. Can you <laughs> can you do a series on Technicolor? I think. I think that is more than appropriate. I think we can make a <laughs> subsection called Technicolor, Technicolor Dream World. Uh, or oh, yes. no, you know what it's going to be called now? Strelix Technicolor Dreamscape. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so anytime I'm going to do Technicolor, so we're going to talk some Powell Pressburger next time. But anyway, oh, yes. back to summertime. We got to get back to summertime because she's still lonely. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> she's still alone. But oh my God. this is also where we get our introduction. To Renato De Rossi, played by Rossano Brazzi, who, la from la. A, when, when he's first introduced from a certain angle, I thought he was Italian Ben Affleck. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And then, I, and I was like, man, he was the bomb in Italian Phantoms, yo. And then, um, but he, he, he's sitting there behind her, alone as well. And they, there's a beautiful synchronized movement that Lean has them do where she's drinking alone and he's drinking alone. They finish their drinks and they put them down at the same time. It's mm. kind of lovely. Oh, it seems beautiful. cheesy. to. It may seem cheesy today, but damn, like something beautiful about what he does with the direction of it is that there's stuff that happens in the background that is just as important as the foreground that elaborates on the distance and the loneliness. And... Uh, uh, it's just Renato done so perfectly. Is, 
Yeah, and Renato's a big part of stuff that happens in the background because we are watching him, not from afar, but like he is clearly eavesdropping. And something that Lean does that's wonderful, he cuts... Um, this is a beautiful edit. Actually, this is one of those good lean edits. He cuts from our view on Jane to his perspective pushing in on Jane. So now we are actually given access to Renato's perspective. He doesn't dominate the perspective, but his his perspective can't be discounted in this movie. And that's how he's able to give the viewer... Uh, the argue the arguable position of dual protagonists or uh, dual dual perspective, and we see that she uh, is having trouble ordering or calling the waiter, and Renato calls the waiter in Italian, and she gets her drink, and but she you know she she doesn't think anything of it. She just continues in her loneliness, um, and she she actually kind of leaves abruptly because she's like, this Italian man's looking at me. She, yeah, she's, she's not comfortable with it. Who, who are you, you pervert? <laughs> also, uh, Rosano Brazzi, three years later, South Pacific, right? That's where you'd know him from. Yep. That If anybody knows who Rosano Brazzi is, you know him from South Pacific. Um, I honestly was trying to struggle about any other film I've seen in him, uh, seen of him other than South Pacific, and I couldn't come up with anything that would stick out. Like, and because mostly he was an Italian actor. Yeah. Um. Uh. But regardless, he's here. He's sexy. Get used to it. He's overwhelming <laughs> to Catherine Hepburn. She's got to. She's got to split. And and here's here's something about the ages of people in this film that I found absolutely wonderful. Uh, Brazzi is in his mid forties in the or early forties in this film. And Catherine Hepburn is uh, in her mid to late forties. So this is an appropriate romance in Hollywood, in a Hollywood movie, which you don't see that often. Usually the man is older and the woman is younger, but this is a film because of the way it's written specifically for Jane Hudson to be up in years alone. If you're going to use an old timey term spinsterish, mm-hmm. um, which people and, use uh, all the time with this movie. Y- yeah. And the, thankfully, I, I mean, I don't know if they use that term anymore, but if they do, they need to stop that. Is that, um, is that like a, <laughs> Inoffensive. I mean, I I never hear anybody say. I just it just seems it just seems discounting of a person's experience because you don't need to have romance to live a full life. But you know, you know like Abs- it, yeah, that makes absolute sense. What, what does yeah, spinster even mean? Yeah, just uh, I believe it's an unwed woman up in years who's who is predeemed by others to be alone the rest of her life with like an old maid yeah an old maid yeah like it's 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 um like spinsterhood is like the second level before you achieve old maid status like <laughs> it's like a video <laughs> so <game>. where do <laughs> where does uh the 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 verb spin fit in there uh, i'm not sure that, yeah <laughs> that I don't know. That might be a podcast in itself. The history yeah, of the word spinster. <laughs> yeah, like what's uh, it? What this is? Welcome to Spinstercast. Uh, <laughs> it's it's, Spinstercast. I talk to other women who are single and talk about how spinsterhood is the fucking ball. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like I hey, mean, I don't have to worry about people with their fucking dirty underwear. Like it's a miracle land. <laughs> I mean, that's a valid perspective, and maybe even an underheard perspective. Yes, exactly. It's almost as if though women's voices should be heard more often, especially yeah, older me? women. 
yes, especially older women, give their voices voices some credit because they've seen some shit and they know some shit. Like Jane. Jane's seen some shit in terms of the perspective of her being like, she calls herself a fancy secretary or like like, like a, a glorified secretary in respect. And like, you know, like she's she's seen a perspective where even though she's independent, you know, she still feels lonely for that result. Like, being independent has been a life sentence for her in terms of like, well, no man will ever touch me because I'm too fucking fierce. Like, yeah. which is, it's not like uncommon for Hepburn to play that kind of role. It's just that like, it's, it's not what we know her for. When we, when I think of Hepburn, I think of Tracy Lord hands down to the end of time. It's going to be Philadelphia story no matter what. Um, I think of her in Woman of the Year too, but I have problems with Woman of the Year by the end of the movie. But I still bringing love it. Up baby. It's, bringing a baby, yes. Um, that one I had to learn to love over time because I used to dismiss it, going like, "Ah, it's just Howard Hawks throwing a tiger into the mix. It doesn't <laughs> do anything for the story." And then I grew to love Cary Grant and rewatched it, and I was like, "No, this movie's perfect, and that tiger's a masterpiece." But, <laughs> but it took time. Yeah. Um, as, as but she, things do. Yeah, and she, like, so the next day, though, Jane continues her journey abroad and uh, into the city. Uh, and uh, she actually, she has, first she has lunch with Morrow, and, <laughs> and Morrow <laughs> coaxes a cigarette out of this woman. And we get something, here on here on Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, we do talk about things that you will, uh, that you, that shouldn't happen in today's films. Um, some of them are obviously societal issues um, that we discuss at length, but one of them is also obvious things. And one of those obvious things you will never see in a movie today, uh, because we've corrected that situation, is children smoking. Yes. <laughs> this, this is this was bizarre. Now I'm going to make a comparison that has never been made in human history and will never happen again. But do does anybody? I mean, John, do you recall when The Hangover Two came out and? Peta flipped their shit over a monkey smoking a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine somebody trying to have a child smoke in a movie today? The, the, the world would be set on fire by American moms angry across the board. Like they'd be like, "What?" Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, this, yeah, it's it's unsettling. It's like unnerving. And and what's even more unnerving? Hepburn gives into it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just like, what the shit? And, and it's Paul Malls, so he's smoking, he's smoking cheap cigarettes. Like, yeah, Well, I guess Paul Malls wouldn't have been this. Um, I smoked Paul Malls every so often, and they're, they're fine. But like, and oh, yeah, back, when I, that, back when I smoked cigarettes, uh, Paul Malls were my go-to. Yeah, and, and they're nice slow burns, so you get, you get your, your uh, money's worth out of it. What's his name? Uh, Kurt Vonnegut smoked Pall Mall cigarettes, and he, uh, he- <laughs> when he was in his 80s, he, uh, he wrote a letter to uh, who owns Pall Mall? I, I forget, like Philip Morris or something. I think it's yeah, Philip Morris in America, and, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, I'd like to sue you. I am uh, you know, 80 <laughs> something years old and I have not died from uh, from smoking cigarettes <laughs> to your life. That sounds exactly like Kurt Vonnegut would do. Right? <laughs> that guy is crazy. But, I, ex- I, ex- I expect nothing less from the author of Slaughterhouse Five. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be like, dude, I haven't fucking died. What is your problem, Paul Mall? Get it together. <laughs> Love that guy. 
I should I should write a letter to Jim Jack Daniels going like, why didn't you bloat my liver when I was drinking? This <laughs> seems like a this seems like a lost opportunity because of your inadequacy, not mine. <laughs> you would you, you there would be a precedent for that action with Kurt Vonnegut for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be, I mean, it's me and Kurt Vonnegut. We're both of a of an equal class. <laughs> I wonder. I, if, if if there's a heaven, he and I he and I will be debaucherous all over it. <laughs> but um, but yeah, though no, he's but he smokes the cigarette, and you know, and what's interesting is like, and this is another thing, like you know, American cigarettes were coveted overseas because they were working off of cheap European cigarettes over there. America's known for its tobacco because it was our crop for a while, um, and uh, it's 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 not super disturbing. It's more just like it kind of takes you back from a modern perspective be like oh, Jesus okay like it's yeah. <laughs> and he's not the only young man that smokes a cigarette in this movie because we'll get into that too but um uh but yeah she goes to shop and she goes alone and uh she sees a red goblet in the window of an antique store she goes in she inquires how much it's worth um the young gentleman who uh addresses her says like oh hold on one second and as she admires the red goblet in walks Renato Oh, they've met before, but they're playing coy with each other. Like, I mean, well, Renato's not. Renato's being very forward. <laughs> like, he is very forward. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You, uh, you, you young American creature, let me tell you how we do it in Italy. Uh, and he, and what he teaches her is bargaining um, or uh, bartering because she, he gives a price of 10000 of the currency and uh, she's, uh, she's like, like okay. I'll take it. <laughs> well, hold on a minute. You can't, uh, you you can't just say I'll take it. You got to bargain, barter for it. You know this this red goblet is 18th century, so it is worth something. But you got to barter. That's the Italian way. And she doesn't want to barter, but he kind of just goes like, okay, I'll barter for you. Yeah. Uh, ten thousand down to eight thousand. <laughs> like, he does the job for her, and he wins and, her over. He does. I mean, yeah, it's charming. Yeah, it is charming. It is super charming. She's falling over herself like when she leaves she's just, it, it, like in her mind it's like i got to go you're just too sexy for me i'm <laughs> literally stumbling over myself and then the camera moves and sees her going out the window and you see her trip as she looks back <laughs> <laughs> and it's so adorable it's so wonderful Aww. like oh these two are falling in love and, and then and, and but, seeing <laughs> Catherine hepburn so vulnerable you know. Oh yeah, he's like I'm fierce, independent, but god damn it, he's delicious. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the the uh, she <laughs> uh, she hopes to go. She hopes to see him again. She, she goes back the next morning and returns to the shop with Morrow. Um, but she's she's disappointed to see that she's that he's not there. And uh, Jane, she decides instead, like, well, I'm just going to get more pictures from my Instagram page. <laughs> and she she tries to take a photo of this shop, that of Renato's shop, but Morrow's in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and and she's like, you little brat, get out of here. Like, no, no, get out of my fucking frame. <laughs> like, and she finally tells him, okay, I want you to get behind me and just stay there. Don't move. Like a, like a true director. Get out of my fucking... It's like Curtiz when he's going like, move a little bit more to the right. More to the right? Okay, now you're out of the picture. Go home. Like... <laughs> <laughs> That that the, she's she, so focused. She gets, 
she gets out of she gets him out of the frame and she starts doing like a fucking like a tracking shot that Scorsese would be like yes 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 more 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 <laughs> and and she does it to the point where she doesn't look behind her and Morrow just lets her fall into the fucking uh, into the into the into the into the, uh, into the uh, Italian waters the canal and, and the canal and then this is yeah yeah thank you for <laughs> thank you for correcting me I got me. you Zach um uh, so, but here's the thing about this scene. Now, I said that there would be a story about the uh, behind the scenes within uh, a particular scene, and it's this. Um, so, when she is walking backwards and falls into the lake, um, she was concerned. Catherine Hepburn was concerned about her health and was not inclined to do the stunt herself. But David Lean felt that he she should do this because it would be obvious if they had replaced her with a stunt double. And he had filled this water with disinfectant that caused it to foam. And when Hepburn uh, got in the water, she had to do this multiple, four times until he was fine with the results. Because Lean is a bit of a perfectionist, and so he's going to ask you to do it until you do it right. Thankfully, there was film in the camera and not a digital card, because if Fincher had done this shit, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn would be dead. <laughs> like, because what happens is that disinfectant um, caused an infection in her eye. And as a result, she was eventually diagnosed with a rare form of conjunctivitis that plagued her the rest of her life. Mm. Now, this is not the only time that Catherine Hepburn suffered on illness on a movie set. Um, this is a bit of a. This is not a spoiler for uh, the African Queen discussion. This is just something that has to be told in this context. She got dysentery on the set of the African Queen. Oh, no. She and she and everybody on the crew, except for Houston and Bogart, because to the claim of Houston, all we did was just drink whiskey. We didn't drink the water, uh. and <laughs> and th and so that's how you get dysentery in Africa, folks. Is you just don't. You drink the water. If you don't want to get dysentery, drink the whiskey, I guess. Um, but and, and so here on this set, that the night after they wrap that scene, her eyes begin to itch and water. She has an eye disease the rest of her life because David Lean was like, no, 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 no. Everybody will know that you're not Catherine Hepburn if you replace it with a stunt double in the water. And, and when you look at the shot, it's a second yeah. <laughs> when she falls in and is in there like there's a way to do this without doing that. It's one of those things where I'm like, this isn't abuse on set. This is kind <laughs> of an accident, but it is one of those things of like, if the, if the actor wants a stunt double, do it. <laughs> like don't question there. Like find if somebody's got to sign off on this and Catherine Hepburn being the trooper that she is does sign off on it. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can't really, uh, you can't really fault anybody. It's just an unfortunate accident, but it's true. But you do um, get a chance, you know, whether <laughs> whether we deserve it or not, to see her grace in in her swimming acumen. Yes, this, her great and her swimming because she was an athletic lady. Her, like, her, yeah, her sw it's, it's just so like how is how is how is she so good at swimming? I I, I get in there and I frantically doggy paddle. I go I, I, I go out every night in the coldest water imaginable out in the East Coast. John and I just She's... ride it out there. Like, I was an original polar bear. Fun fucking fact. I was a polar bear. <laughs> I was pretty skinny, but I was still a polar bear. Um, and also in this scene, by the way, John, we also see her super vulnerable because mm -hmm. she tries to play it off as a joke. Nobody understands it, and she just goes... 
<coughs> she goes, uh, skip it. Like, skip it. It's not worth it. And she says something that almost made me cry. She's like, Mario, take me home. And she, the way she says it, I'm like, oh, oh God, I've been this embarrassed too in my life. Jesus Christ. And, but, but... Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so this is the point where the uh, recording uh, cut out, unfortunately. Um, but I'm going to pick you up on the plot as best as I can here. So, Jane goes back to the Pensione, uh, and there she discovers Renato, who has come to basically make the moves on her. Um, he is trying to explain to her that she should, she should not throw away a chance for a happy uh, situation, such as them maybe going out to dinner and uh, having a good time. Uh, Jane is uh, kind of... Uh, you know, fending off the advances, but then she starts succumbing a little bit, and then the American couple got, come back in uh, from a shopping trip where they have bought in goblets uh, similar into design to the one that Jane had bought from Renato. Um, Jane thinks she's been cheated um, price-wise by Renato on these goblets, which could also be a way for her to use a defense mechanism to not accept his offer of dinner. Uh, Renato calms her down and assures her, no, 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 there's several designs that are similar to this. The price you pay for that goblet is more than correct. Uh, so so they agree to meet up. They go to a concert um, at the Piazza uh, where the uh, con- uh, the orchestra is playing the Lagaza Ladra. Um, and then a flower seller shows up and Jane picks a gardenia instead of an orchid. When Renato asks why, uh, Jane explains that uh, she wanted a gardenia when she was um, seeing this fellow uh, that she knew in school, uh, but he could not afford the gardenia. So just something simple and small from her past that she was trying to reclaim. Uh, They go wandering through Venice after the concert. She drops her gardenia into the canal, and um, unfortunately, they are neither of them are able to reach it. They're just barely out of reach of this gardenia, um, and there's a beautiful shot of the gardenia uh, in the water and the reflection of Jane and Renato trying to grab it. A beautiful, uh, poetic image uh, representing Jane's inability to grasp onto this perfect thing that she's been wanting to reach for. Um, and so they go back to the pensione where uh, they kiss... Uh, Jane says that she loves him, uh, and they agreed to meet again. Uh, so she goes to a salon. She gets dressed up. Uh, she gets new clothes, and she goes to uh, the uh, piazza where Renato's nephew Vito, who we met earlier, arrives, and uh, he reveals um, rather callously and inadvertently that, uh, uh-oh, he's not nephew Vito. He's son Vito. That's right. Renato's son is Vito. Um, so naturally, Jane is not happy about this. Uh, she goes to a bar where she encounters Phil, who uh, uh, they eat potato chips together, and Phil confesses that her marriage is on the rocks. Uh, so not everything is uh, quite as glamorous as uh, she might have uh, pictured between uh, Phil and Eddie. Um, and then Jane then goes back to the pensione and discovers that Eddie is having an affair with Signor Farini um, as she sees them going at it um, out on the deck. Uh, and uh, as she comes back uh, from seeing this whole affair, she discovers that Maro is the uh, uh, inter- inter- intermediary uh, making the and facilitating the romance of Eddie and uh, Signora Farini. And so that's where we uh, pick up at the recording where we are talking about Maro being the instigator for this whole affair. Once again, I am apologizing profusely uh, for this uh unfortunate circumstance with the recording we did have a lot to say about that imagery of the gardenia and the way it uh represents a lot of how the story unfolds but unfortunately 
there was not much that could be done to save that portion of the recording. Now, on to the rest of the episode where you will hear my annoying voice and the beautiful tones of John Strelick as we continue our discussion of summertime. Um, but uh, regardless, yes, this is happening. And Morrow is the go-between. <laughs> that that scandalous motherfucker Morrow. He is... He, he is the troublemaker amongst troublemakers in this movie. Uh, she, and naturally, Jane is appalled, but basically she's deflecting her own heartbreak onto <laughs> this other infidelity as a way to distract herself from her anger. And so, so much so that when Renato comes back in, she doesn't get in his face at first. She's, she's more just like, I'm going to kill you, Mara. <laughs> like, she's about to fucking strangle this kid. For, for like, how dare you ruin other people's romances, you little twerp. <laughs> and then, like, and Renato has to be like, no, 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 no. Like, uh, how, uh, why are you going to give him shit for trying to make money? He's an urchin. Like, <laughs> like yeah, that's that's my my opinion. It falls in line with Renato's. Like, hey man, a buck is a buck. Like, and Morrow's got to make some dough. And <laughs> and uh, but you know, Morrow is told to scat, and uh, uh, and Ren- uh, and she then lays in to Renato. Um, because Renato's asking, like, what what business is it of is it of yours if Fiorini and uh Eddie are having a relationship? And she's again deflecting her own heartbreak onto this one and feeling protective of mm-hmm. this one. And he goes like, no, I think this is more about something else. And she reveals that she knows he's married. And he goes, uh, oh. And you see a look of like, oh shit. I uh, oh, guess the, guess this, guess this came out too soon. Um, my wife is dead? Question mark. No, that's not what's gonna <laughs> happen. <laughs> like he just goes through a rolodex of going like ah, my mom, my mom, mom, He chalks it up to a different uh, cultural understanding, right? Y- yeah. No, it, 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 he. And he doubles down on like you, you Americans are so prudish, and us Italians are uh, of a of a lovely romantic nature, and uh, we're not, yep. we're, we don't. Which have... of course, which of course, David Lean would, uh, <laughs> would, would is probably responsible for that bit of dialogue the, in the script. Uh, yes, no, you, you're absolutely right, John. When when I was making <laughs> Summertime, I really wanted to reflect the fact that most of the American audience that be watching my movies are fucking prudes, and I just don't <laughs> approve of that. I approve of having as many wives as I imagine possible <laughs> and flailing around and just loving people. Go, won't you, won't you, bring a little water, bring a little wine, bring a little loving <laughs> all the time. Um, Absolutely, and then that's when that that's when uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth come out and go like, "Can we be in this movie too? It's in Italy." <laughs> Grazie. Uh, <laughs> well. If you if you didn't think that Quentin Tarantino's world could be connected to David Lean's, guess what? You don't know me <laughs> and, and the way my mind works. Um, but yeah, no, but the, but the 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 kind of the, the within this though is. He accuses her of being immature with her um, viewpoint on love and she and and also on her expectations of what her perfect Italian romance would be. And I don't agree with with Renato's perspective, but it is interesting how he talks about realistic expectations uh, in a way that is 
it's very real and very raw and very honest, even though if it mm-hmm. rings false to us as people or whatever our viewpoint is on marriage. Obviously, there's a different viewpoint on marriage across the board, whether it's, you know, open marriages, polyamory. There's other views. There's other views that I respect to the ends of the earth. Traditionally, as I've been exposed to it, marriage is something you don't break from uh, with an affair. But, you know, obviously... Ma, uh, Renato has an arrangement of sorts that he is able to work around in his brain. To what extent his mm-hmm. wife knows about this really is not really determined. Um, and, it, and it kind of isn't important because my impression of Renato on this film is, is that he is he is entranced by her, but he also doesn't fully consider this a a, a, a thing that will last longer than a few weeks. Um, yeah. I think he's entranced by her exotically from the idea of like a European meeting an American and vice versa. And it's the, it's the idea of like, in his mind, it's, uh, it's an affair, right? And it, it's a fling, right? It's a, and, and in that it's kind of a, kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and his, like to like, sort of like strong man, his perspective is like, it's like, uh, there's like that one Radiohead song where they they say there's different kinds of love. You yeah, know? yeah. So, so they just have different kinds of uh, expectations of what's going on. And and you know, John, fun fact: I, David Lean, was actually the writer of Different Kinds of Love, and Radiohead stole it from me. Those fucking little twerps. Like, I I don't know <laughs> how. I don't know how they broke into my into my grave and stole that song because it was in my pocket <laughs> and I kept it in my wallet next to the pictures of my six wives <laughs> and I <laughs> and I'm and I'm just I'm just upset. I mean, I'm very happy that Johnny Greenwood does the score for Paul Thomas Anderson movies. We have them up here, and I think they're wonderful. But that doesn't excuse song theft. Um, <laughs> uh, no. Spe- but- speaking of speaking of uh, Phantom Thread, though, just real quick. Yes, please do. <laughs> the um the passionate friends there's there's a direct uh there's there's a arts ball in passionate friends mm-hmm. that is exactly the the new year's uh ball in uh phantom thread really that he just he just he just took that really because like wait, and, obviously when i watch phantom thread i'm thinking rebecca all the way through <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh yeah there's that too, but there's also the Passionate Friend by David Lean, mm-hmm. and and Trevor Howard plays the 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 char- uh, the 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 young sort of like lover that's kind of stealing away, uh, <clears throat> from uh, the the woman from Claude Rains, um, but Trevor Howard looks very much like the actor they cast for the for the young doctor in the in the Phantom Thread, so it's 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 uh it's not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an accident. It's a very, it's a very uh, wonderful nod, yeah, by Paul Thomas Anderson to that. If if Paul Th- Thomas Anderson is going to be the um, the Quentin Tarantino of Golden Age Hollywood, I support that. <laughs> I would please double- remix that culture. I I, culture. <laughs> I agree. I will double down on that. And also, I'm going to argue the theory that the only time Daniel Day Lewis ever stepped out of character was to ask Paul, "Hey, hey, hey, is this a homage to Passionate Friends?" <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right back to being a clothes maker <laughs> uh, sewing making those shoes isn't it wonderful darling kiss me again before i'm sick ah, i love that line anyway back to this though so good so That's they so they they kiss 
And it's a very passionate. I will say this movie is steamy, man. This is steamy AF. Like this is some hot, hot, hot love making going on in here. And we're going to come to a part here where I told you there might be some Hitchcock thievery or at least Hitchcock uh, adjacent imagery. And there is uh, because so they um, uh, they they uh, they go to dinner again and then they go off into uh, they go back to her hotel room. I, I was trying to figure out the the. Uh, uh, space of this, uh, they, they, or did they go just to a uh, a place to be alone? Period, because the because the scene where I'm talking about obviously is where she leaves the shoe on the balcony. Um, yeah, uh, but they uh, they're actually there before that. There's a beautiful shot of just their feet dancing over this um, reflection of a, a a restaurant sign. That is one of the most lovely things I've ever seen in my life. Like Lean was just. Oh. You know, like he's holding on those feet stronger than Quentin Tarantino ever did. You know, like it's <laughs> it's just on there for a good long time. Uh, and then they go back up. They go to com- commiserate in some love. And yes. Uh, and uh, as they are about to awaken the fiery passion within them, what do we see, John? I want you to tell me what we see. Fireworks. Fireworks. Fireworks, John. Do you do you know what I, Alfred Hitchcock, did for a lovemaking scene in To Catch a Thief? No, I'll tell you. I had Cary Grant and Grace Kelly in a drawing room together, and they espoused their passions for one another through talk of intrigue and cat burglary and etc. And interspliced with that were shots of Fucking fireworks. God damn it, David Lee, you motherfucking <laughs> thief. <laughs> like, it was, the moment I saw that, I was like, shit. To Catch a Thief was out the year before. Mm. Do you do you think David Lean saw it and said, what if I stole? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what if I just decided to commit a Tarantino, if you will? <laughs> remix it to my own shit um yeah. which would i mean be... it's it's a great metaphor for uh for um uh coital discovery you know? yeah and and i will say lean's fireworks are more expressive than hitchcock's fireworks because lean's fireworks are very very loud and abrasive epic if you will hitchcock's is a little bit faster in that scene um and they're a little bit more interspersed this one is to really indicate that uh that coital interaction that is about to occur but one of the other images that i would argue for the criterion cover of this film is her shoe being left on the balcony it is actually Mm. really beautiful shot a bright red shoe um, being surrounded by this red hue of the fireworks that are going up and then coming down. It yes. is lovely, lovely filmmaking. Like, I haven't seen shoes that red since the red shoes. Um, and <laughs> It's uh, that Technicolor, man. Technicolor gets those reds in, yeah. in a way you just don't get with Eastman color and you certainly don't get with... Uh, no, you don't get uh, it with my color whatsoever. <laughs> you don't get it with my color whatsoever. You don't get it with... You, you don't yeah, get it with, are you... No, I'm not. <laughs> like I wish. You, you're <laughs> not be... there to the Kodak Eastman. Uh... No, I, I'd be rolling in money if I were John. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be talking on our podcast. We'd be making a movie right now on my dime. I don't. I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, the Kodak stock uh, bumped up a bit when they thought they were being uh, 
involved in the uh, the vaccine but it's it's pretty down these days yeah yeah i guess that's uh i, I guess i you know it, whatever digital is the way of the future right suck it kodak <laughs> no yeah please preserve film please 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 yeah can we can we have both can we have no. both no 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 we can't please. david da- we- no john david fincher won't allow it you know, he's, oh. he's got to have as many takes as he fucking wants. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. After this conversation, I'm watching Mank finally. So <laughs> that's probably why Fincher's on my mind right now. Oh, um, but Today's um, the day. I mean, yeah, to, hey, not hey, to John, spoil the evergreen nature of this. John, it's Manksgiving. It's Manksgiving, uh, and we're just a part is. of it. <laughs> we're a part of it. Which is interesting that you're gonna you're gonna watch it though. I mean, you got to wait for that Blu-ray, don't you? No, 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 no. I, I still watch it as <laughs> soon as it comes out. I'm not. I'm. I, I mean, and also I was robbed of the theatrical experience because we were supposed to get it two weeks ago um, mm. at the Mayan, but then the Mayan shut down uh, because of the growing concerns. So again, guys, wear a fucking mask. Um, anyway, yes, uh, I'm, I'm done with that now. <laughs> but anyway, so they um they they awaken in in the they spend several days in Burano or Burano. Am I pronouncing it right, Burano? Um, I, that's how I'd pronounce it. Yeah, Burano. Um, where they uh very much have this whirlwind of a romance with uh some very obviously very cute scenes of them looking out different parts of a window, and then he goes into another window that's closer, and they go like, "Aha, you're closer." And um, <laughs> and then, but then there's another thing that I think he might have stolen from Hitchcock because in To Catch a Thief, there's a lot of phallic imagery afoot. David Lean, I think, is a little bit more subtle with this because there's that scene where they're lying in the grass with each other, and in the background, you see a very long, shafty-like object stru- uh, shooting out. It's a building, obviously, but uh, but mm-hmm. it looks like a penis. And uh, it, it, so it's interesting how, as they're embracing in the grass like this, like that that image is in the back there, and you know, and Hitchcock's going like, "God damn it, stop being fucking subtle and artsy, you piece of shit!" <laughs> <laughs> God, God, fucking the Alma. I'm, I'm really pissed. I'm gonna make a horror movie now just to piss these people off. Like, I gotta get that Cary Grant movie done, and then after that, I'm just gonna make a horror movie that'll just throw a phallic imagery out the fucking window. Um, <laughs> but, but that shot is so beautiful. I, it's I don't beautiful, understand. and and I will and I will say it's some one of the sexiest picnic scenes I've ever seen in my life. Because goddamn oh. it, they are going on each other. That little dialogue of like, you know, will you take me to that? Will you take me to the museum tomorrow? And he's like. No, he's like, well, I will, I'll never kiss you again if you don't. And he goes, uh, and he and he goes like, yes, you will. And he's like, yes, I think I will. <laughs> and then he just kisses, and I'm like, God damn it, that is the sexiest shit. So, but it's within this that we don't see in a normal movie today, and I guess this is one of the upped antes that uh, modern cinema provides is that we would probably have her realizing what actually has to happen after uh, a hot and heavy sex scene or a scene of intimacy that is beyond the borders of the Sherlock office and the, and the code. And, (laughs) um, but she comes to this conclusion of, and, and it's the only part of the film that I felt was a little rushed, but I forgive it because of the era and the style at the time um, that she basically says like, look, I'm leaving in two hours. I'm getting on the train and leaving. And Renato goes like, but no, what about our love? And you, you very much see Renato upset by this in a way that doesn't feel like, 
but what? I thought we had more sexy time together. It's not that. It's literally like, wow, like I'm crushed that you're leaving me this quick. And she leaves rather abruptly and she she's she's torn. She doesn't want to do it, but she knows she has to do it. She gets well, she tr- knows that she knows that there's no future in it. Yeah, you know, she, that, yeah she's just like, look, I. This but is also, it. it feels like she's also there's something uh, there's something about this like this like for you know this like uh, destination romance that she's like um, she she it feels like she maybe is romanticizing the tragic nature of it. You know? Yeah, yeah. She's in that like, her oh. saying that like mm-hmm. don't follow me to the train station. Yeah, it is. You know. Us- but uh, but does she say that with the thought of like he's gonna come to the fucking train station? Well, I she know. wants him to. <laughs> yeah, it's like look, I don't want you to come, wink. But uh, which but which, which like points a- towards that that idea of like you know she's drawn towards the. I feel like I mean I feel like she's drawn towards the dramatics of the situation. She she wants it to be this story that she can tell her children. Yes, you know that she could tell uh, her friends of this like doomed romance uh that's that's actually a very interesting point of view i didn't even think about that well actually hold on i take that back i didn't think of the way you said it but there was something in the back of my head as this movie was ending that i want to touch on when we get to that final image because it support your your theory is absolutely 100 percent foolproof on that because so i'll get to this i'll get to this part of it so she gets to the train station she says goodbye to Morrow yeah. comes up and says goodbye. Like, <laughs> Morrow's Morrow seems to be like this guy, this like street urchin hustler kid, but it's like he's it, it feels like he's like best friends with her. You know, you know he's sidekick. probably helping other people out. <laughs> she's, he's she's, like she's his sidekick. If there wasn't a romance plot in this movie, it's her and Morrow solving mysteries in Italy. That's what right? it is. I mean, I want to see that movie. Come on, Morrow, we've got a cape and a solve. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Right away, ladies. Like gotcha. The the sassy duo. I don't know who's sassier, her or him. Oh, I think I, I think they uh, they have the advantage on each other on every di- different given moment. It's not like a Sherlock yeah. Holmes Watson relationship where Watts, Watson's the buf- the the buffoon technically in the grand yeah. scheme. Like no, it's two Sherlock's. It's two Sherlock's. <laughs> <laughs> Coming this Great. summer, Catherine Hepburn and Morrow in two Sherlock's. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but no, she's. He not only says goodbye, he gives her a trinket, and he goes. She goes like, "No, I don't want to buy a trinket from you." He's like, "No, I give it to you because because I like you." And it's like, "Oh, mm-hmm. that's adorable." And then Morrow goes leaves to hustle other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, goes, he goes like, "Yeah, lady, I like you, but um, I gotta go uh, uh, con these other stiffs out of things." Bye. <laughs> it's like leaves. that weird line of like he seems to only care about her, but then not care about her at all. Yeah. No. I mean, well, he he, you could tell like if there were a sequel to this film, which I'll get to this in a second. If there were a sequel to this film, he'd be like, "Hey, lady, you're back." <laughs> like, <laughs> long time. <laughs> see <laughs> you want to buy racing form <laughs> like something like that and so she gets in the train it's about to leave and as it leaves Renato comes running up with something mm. in his hands it's a package it's a nicely mm. wrapped package uh very nicely wrapped package with wrapping paper by party city now it, he comes running into the uh to the train and uh, she's waving. She's trying to actually. She's trying to get him to come to him because she's like, "Oh, good. Like he he did show up." So the the the, the 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 fanciful notions of my of my literate mind have finally come to fruition. I am a god. I am the person in Stranger Than Fiction, and <laughs> she he's running and she he doesn't quite make it. 
doesn't quite make it. It's actually kind of sad when you watch it because it's like it's like a Don Adams missed him by that much. And mm-hmm. he pulls out of the package a gardenia and holds it up. She sees it. She acknowledges it. And there's this. And she the, says, I see it. I, I see it. it. Yep. And the shot from behind her continuing mm. to wave as it gets further and further away is one of the most epic romantic shots I've ever seen in a movie period. Oh, Not when they cut back to beautiful. her face. It's just that shot from behind her. She just continues to wave. She continues to wave until it is absolutely clear that he could not see her. Oh, yeah. And even it seems like there's a couple seconds afterward, and she, the music swells, and we get this very wide shot of the train leaving, and we get the credits as they come up. Fun. Uh, one thing before we get to this theory that I have, I will notice that David Lean really likes trains, I think, because I think, mm-hmm. Lawrence of Arabia got a lot of trains. Bridge on the River Kwai, there's some trains. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, and, and, uh, but this movie, like... Passionate Friend. Did, did he have a train set or something that he just liked playing with in, the, in his garage or something? Like, is that the only way he could get away from his six wives was his train set? Like... <laughs> Oh, wait, no, 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 no. I don't know if there was a train passing in front, but there definitely was in um, uh, uh, Brief Encounter. That's where oh. she meets uh, Trevor Howard is in the train station. Oh, you know, uh, you know, if if Alfred Hitchcock had not made Strangers on a Train, I would have made Strangers on a Train because it's got trains in it. <laughs> um, it's a but- wonder he didn't use train as the, the metaphor for sex. Well, I think... I'm glad just... he I'm glad he didn't. And you know why, John. Oh, you know why. Because <laughs> guess who did it the fucking best? Boom. Hitch. 101. Train go into tunnel. Mean Cary Grant. Fuck Eva Marie Saint. God damn it. I'm a genius. <laughs> um, but, exactly. But we get the end. We get the credits. Nobody nobody thought of uh, uh, the train as a euphemism for, for sex until 1959. Yes, yes, that's true. Nobody thought of it until 1959. The Roadrunner ca- cartoons came close, but they weren't really <laughs> alluding to sex. They were alluding to the fact that that coyote could not get that fucking bird. And I used to root for the coyote because I thought he got a raw deal, but that's I, I always kind of tend to hotten myself towards the villains of a piece um no he yeah we we're we're done with this i'll tell you my theory on this is that like there was a part of me when it comes to epic romantic stories a lot of the big ones have had some form of literary sequel to them so like mm-hmm. i'll go to gone with the wind as a as an example gone with the wind does have a uh, a, a follow-up novel that was written and was like, I guess, officially licensed, or or even if it wasn't licensed, you know, it was it had some attention. Uh, Casablanca has definitely had this in its existence. There's novels that there's a particular novel as time goes by that uh, discusses not only Rick and Louis's origins, <laughs> which <laughs> which is something I need to read, uh, but also <laughs> uh, what happens afterwards and how Rick and Ilsa meet one more time. So this is fanciful notion, whatnot, and. Part of me wants a sequel to Summertime set years later when Ronaldo and Jane are much older and somehow find a way for Morrow to have his own love story. The only reason I say that is because like if you were to continue this story, there could be another way to elaborate on the themes of this film. Now, the oh, only yeah. reason why I'm glad it doesn't exist is because Richard Linkletter saw movies like Summertime and said, well, I've got the before movies and I'm going to do it like that. 
because that's kind of what the before trilogy ends up doing is it uh before before sunset and before midnight pretty much elaborate on the continuation of this kind of whirlwind romance that summertime exudes um yeah which is interesting so like i i don't know if richard linkletter saw something like summertime and said say i i i can do my version of that with ethan hawk but what is very clear is that movies like summertime have influenced other filmmakers down the line and you can get something like a before sunrise that then richard linkletter says well what if they had more adventures and more sexy time and more uh troubling things in their relationship and that's what you get with the before trilogy yeah exactly um and so you know what i'd love to see i'd love to see morrow go to akron ohio what and con people out of their hard-earned factory money (laughs) hey hey maybe or maybe fall in love and 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 then he meets uh he meets an older jane who's like retired in in her way and 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 she gets to play yeah, the like mentor, the, the mentorish role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of show him around America in a way, and he and kind of maybe falls in love. We have to be careful because there was a sequel to Terms of Endearment that does something like that. That I would want uh, to avoid all the pitfalls on that. Uh, but I would agree with that. <laughs> and not only that, when Ma- there, you should have Jane in the moment where Morrow has some heartbreak in his relationship, have Jane in the back clapping. And going like, yes. now you fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is kind of like, uh, you know, I they, they say this type of movie kind of fell out of fashion in the 60s and 70s. This sort of like a uh, woman goes abroad and falls in love with a Euro, you know, suave man. You yeah. Know, it kind of I'm, became oh, cheesy and stuff. Oh, like yeah. That. It became very cheesy to the point where. It ended up rounding about itself and becoming popular again because I'm not going to expound on the critical value of these films because I haven't really dug into that. But why do you think Mamma Mia is very popular? Yeah. <laughs> American I eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, eat. Well, is that popular, John? <laughs> or did yeah. we just or did we just like that title way too much to not make fun of it? <laughs> um, yeah. I haven't seen that film, but I've heard it's not terrible. Um, and Ryan, I mean, Mur- Ryan Murphy is a guy I like on specific terms. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, is Ryan Murphy the guy who did uh, ra- the Ratchet? He did Ratchet. I haven't watched yeah. Ratchet. Have you? <laughs> no, but that tr- the tr- I watched the trailer for it, and I was like, w- in in what world is this based <laughs> off of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> I'm glad you did because you're more measured than I was because when I saw that I'm I just yelled out the word why at the top of my lungs in the screechiest voice imaginable like it could have it's, broken a thousand windows if I had actual windows but you know I mean I mean he's he's probably like from a business perspective probably probably not wrong at all because most people who are on Netflix and are potentially going to watch that show have not seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's true. You know? I'm just wondering what happens when Randall R.P. McMurphy has to pop onto the scene. Like, is that the final shot 
where she's like, I've successfully subdued this hospital. Nobody will ever defeat my reign. And then the camera pans over to a Jack Nicholson lookalike going like, hello, Nurse Ratchet. (laughs) (laughs) We could only hope. (laughs) We could only hope. Between you getting Criterion Channel and vowing to read more i'm sure you will never find out what the final shot is i'll skip I'll, I'll skip to the end after they've gone to season 19 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it oddly enough that'll be the one netflix show that doesn't fucking end <laughs> oh god knowing my luck we can't get mst3k anymore but i could sure get season 25 of ratchet <laughs> i'm sure hey i'm sure i'm sure it has plenty of value i'm I, i'm not i don't want to yuck oh, yeah, anybody's no, like, yum if you I'll, guys if you love ratchet that's beautiful. I I I I'd love to hear what you have to say that oh, yeah. about what how it feeds your soul. Absolutely, absolutely. And like, and I and I kid about it, but I'm kidding about it from the perspective of somebody <laughs> who had to read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and then wore out the movie instead of uh, bothering to process the novel properly. Uh, yeah, but that right. movie's amazing. My my, because I'm not opposed to remakes either. Like heck, the Maltese Falcon is a remake of a movie that was done twice before. So you know, like exactly. you're guess what? One Flew Over the Noir- Cuckoo's Nest is also a uh, a a movie my father said is the greatest movie of all time. And you know what? That was that. And your father was absolutely right because it is one of the yeah. best movies. And Milo Shorman, one of the best directors in the world. Um, Amazing. See, see Man on the Moon, guys. Man on the Moon. His last movie or his last American movie. It's pretty wonderful. Um, Milo Shorman, uh, Czech, you know, John yeah. Strelick, um, I'm Czech, you know, he's, he's in my blood. Yep. Yep. He's, he's, Milos is a guy that like I need to do some other separate podcast where we just talk about wonderful directors that came out of the 70s that aren't just Coppola, Scorsese and um, Spielberg and Lucas because Milos Forman I don't think gets enough credit for stuff and I, I but anyway he's that's beside the point We're, let's get back to lean here for a second because this <laughs> film had some issues at the uh, Sherlock office uh, Jeffrey Sherlock um, who, uh, amongst other things, gave um, Mr. Hitchcock some trouble because I dared to show a toilet on screen and dared show honesty on the screen. Mm. People shit in toilets. You're welcome. <laughs> You're fucking welcome. Leave it to Beaver and me. We're both the people who had the balls to do it. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's true. Uh, but uh, he, uh, Jeffrey Sherlock notified United Artists executives that the film would not be approved because of its depiction of adultery. Um, which seems bullshit to me because they've shown adultery on the screen before. I think it's the fact that Jane and Renato don't learn a lesson at the end of the movie on a surface level. They obviously learn a lesson, but not the lesson that the production code wants them to hear, uh, wants them to learn. And what's more, the biggest scene they had the objection to was the, the red shoe scene. Um, and the shot of the fireworks, which, hey, you know, fun fact, they didn't have a problem with my fireworks. So I'm just saying maybe I'm just better at getting away with shit. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's 18 feet of f- uh, film was deleted from this film before the production code granted approval. So there's another version of this film with some with some 18 feet of footage that we need. It's not a lot of footage, but it's it's definitely some footage. Um and the National Catholic Legion of Decency, uh, those guys are back. Remember them from the Black Cat discussion? Um, they objected to a line of dialogue that was finally trimmed, um, and they also, but they were they, they gave it with a B minus rating, des- designated uh, designating the film as morally objectionable in parts. 
Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, but uh, it doesn't matter. The movie was released. Uh, David Lean would describe this film as his favorite, um, and he became so enamored with Venice that he eventually made it his second home. Um, mm. the, cr- the critics of this film are of many. Um, we'll go to my favorite person to hate, Mr. Bosley Crowther. Everybody cheer for Bosley. He's back. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't, can't not talk about the New York Times critic that had no way of being consistent with his opinions whatsoever. He said, in adapting for the screen Arthur Lorenz's stage play, The Time for the Cuckoo, A Time of the Cuckoo, Mr. Lean and H.E. Bates discarded most of the individual shadings and psychological subtleties of that romance. They reduced the complicated pondering of an American woman's first go at love with a middle-aged merchant of Venice to pleasingly elemental terms, and they let the evident inspiration of their heroine's emotional release be little more than the spell cast by the city upon her fitful and lonely state of mind. The challenge thus set of making Venice the moving force in propelling the play has been met by Mr. Lean as the director with magnificent feeling and skill. Through the lens of his color camera, the wondrous city of spectacles and moods becomes a rich and exciting organism that fairly takes command of the screen and the curious hypnotic fascination of that labyrinthian place beside the sea is brilliantly conveyed to the viewer as the impulse for the character's passing moods. It is Venice itself that gives the flavor and the emotional stimulation for this film, for it can't be denied that the credibility of the brief love affair is considerably strained in substance, nor can it be honestly gainsaid that the breakup after a blissful go round is a uh, is abrupt and illogical. So I'm gonna translate Bosley's pretentious bullshit into a simple <laughs> sentence. It looks pretty, but it didn't do it for me. And mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so kind of like my opinion on the tree of life. Whatever, go figure. I Bosley, <laughs> I, I, I'll rewatch it and reevaluate it. Don't worry, guys. I'm not completely ill on. Hey, Malik. man. You know you're you're you're. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you're entitled to how you feel you know if something yeah, if something re- touches your soul yeah it touches your soul if it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't. that's all oh, right yeah. oh yeah no absolutely everybody everybody's at, it's okay to like a movie guys it's okay to like apparently a movie. uh bosley crowther though didn't really have much of a soul so he's just like you know you stripped all the psychological shadings out of it i'm like what are you talking about it's which is which is true the uh the i mean not true in in capital T true, but I mean the the the, the author of the uh, the play would also uh, attest to that. Yeah, no, he he was also rather perturbed by the stripping of stuff. But he said I, uh, he said the he said the screenplay was created to H. E. Bates, a first rate English novelist, who should have yeah. been created, uh, but it should have been created to Kay Hepburn and David Lean. True believers that stars can do anything they want, even write. In this aspect of the movie business, they were unoriginal. Yeah. Now, here's where I'm going to disagree with Crowther and Lorenz. And I don't like disagreeing with Lorenz because I think he's a damn smart fella. Um, is that he's th- great, but his his original name for the, for Jane Hudson was Leona Samish. Yeah. Not not. Uh... Not catchy enough, Arthur. Try again. Um, <laughs> I mean, definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely unique. Not gonna lie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, but, 
But I'd argue that like Lean is using the spectacle of movie making. I can't call it Hollywood because it is British. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I can call it British Hollywood or like a filmmaking in general of this era, especially the glamour and the glitz is utilized to prop up adult issues in a way that they hadn't been done before. So in this respect, it is progressive of this film to do what it does, given the limitations they'd have from the Sherlock office and the Catholic Legion of Decency to do things in a film that you probably could get away with in a play much easier. Variety wrote, um, wrote something interesting here. Uh, the reviewer for Variety wrote that it stacks up as promising entertainment with some reservations. There is a lack of cohesion and some abruptness in plot transitions without a too, beer, or too clear buildup. Lesser characterizations, too, are on the sketchy side. Rossano Brazzi scores a triumph of charm and reserve. Hepburn turns in a feverish acting chore of proud loneliness. I'm glad that they uh, are a little bit more positive on this, but like I, I, I will agree that there are scenes that skip around, but yeah, yeah. But there's but there's I, a, but there's an episodic nature to it in the fact that there's travel. She's traveling. Sure, I don't expect yeah. it to be entirely like point for point, A to B to C to D. Like this is sure. typical of the era. So. Also, I think I think that they're they're taking note of her her shift from like full on. Uh, love affair to I'm leaving in two days, which which is pretty abrupt. I feel like there's an emotional sort of anchor towards it that that there is this this str- that that kind of alludes to like the strength of the independence of the 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 character and that that her leaving is 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 a way of her like putting her own ending to this love affair story. Right, that she's that she's experienced, so that she can tell it, you know, when she gets home to her friends and and potentially her family. You know, she's like, you'll but never believe a... what I did. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I could see that there being, you know, that that does kind of come pretty abruptly. Yeah, it it is very quick. Um yeah. I always chalk this up to storytelling of the era. If you look at most films, they're not as cohesive as they ought to be because there's a skipping around. A lot of them, like a lot of what you'll notice it is in the most of it is actually in adaptations of books because they're trying to get the entire plot of a book crammed into a movie. Um, yeah. Like Rebecca, I love Rebecca as a film, and I'm happy that Selznick and Hitchcock made the movie the way they did. But it's beautiful. Uh, but admittedly, Rebecca skips around more than enough. <laughs> like it's did you see, did you see the remake that uh, uh Ben Wheatley did? I did. And um funny for a movie that's around the same runtime if not shorter, um he didn't do much to change what was going on, so I guess he kind of basically remade the Hitchcock movie he said he wasn't remaking. So He did like a Gus Van Zant with a Psycho like remake. Yeah, not not to that like point. shot it, for shot. It does have Wheatley style. It's just that or at least what I, I mean, know of Wheatley style. I'm very Wheatley ignorant, but yeah, me too. Just, I haven't, it, I, I, I haven't seen it, but it's not, it's not, not worth watching. Like you should watch it. Like I think, like if you're not familiar with Rebecca and you haven't, if and you're not interested in watching the Hitchcock movie, it does the job well. It's just that, uh, I feel like it's less sinister 
yeah. in Wheatley's version. Hitchcock's feels sinister. This one feels a little bit more. The one thing I like is that it allows the Joan Fontaine character of I to be a little bit more um, controlling of her own destiny, and it's much more present than oh. in Joan Fontaine's performance. It's not. It's not by much though. Like I still okay. think Fontaine's superior in the role, but I think yeah. Lily Collins brings a command to the role that had not really existed because of the place of women at that time. But uh, it's so but she I, she shines like a new light on on the source material. Yeah, she does absolutely. Um, well, that's and, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, but again, there's other issues with that film. But anyway, um, this film, <laughs> Summertime, was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Actress, Catherine Hepburn. Because of course, I won. Why wouldn't I have a nomination under my belt for this and everything else I Absolutely. did? Absolutely. I mean, um, she's she's coming hot off of a uh, uh, African Queen. Yes, and if they could give Bogey an award for not getting dysentery, I can get an award for <laughs> getting. F- fucking eye infections um but no she did not win she was only nominated and david lean was nominated for best director he did not win but he would go on to win not too long after for the bridge of the river quarry uh mm-hmm. and uh and then later he would go on to lend it for lawrence of arabia and uh but the the british film academy uh the Fr- british academy film awards um best film from any source was nominated and Best Foreign Actress, Katherine Hepburn, was nominated. The only awards it really won were the National Board of Review Awards for Top Ten Films, which when we think of the National Board of Review today, we think of how easy it is to get on that list. Um, <laughs> Clint Eastwood can get on that list for The Ballad of Richard Jewell. And I still haven't seen Richard Jewell, but um, I can't imagine it's absolutely worth putting on that list. Um, yeah, I haven't uh, seen either, but I love that guy in um, uh, the... Uh, oh, yeah, I, Tanya and uh, Black I, Tanya. Yeah, he, he Paul was, Walter he Hauser, so he's wonderful. Did you see uh, The Five Bloods? Uh, no, I didn't. He's I in it for a bit. He's fun in it. He's in it for uh, a bit. He plays a fun role in it. Um, I'm excited. The, I'm excited to see what he does. Yeah, The Defy Bloods, watch it, guys. It's really good. Um, spot, and Chadwick Boseman's penultimate role is wonderful. Um, but mm, it did also win... Rest in peace. Yeah, R.I.P. Wakanda forever. Uh, Wakanda the New forever. Yep. Yeah, the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, though, did give David Lean Best Director, um, and they nominated uh, Hepburn. So, uh, the film uh, had some nice impact uh, abroad and whatnot. Um, there, uh, <laughs> there's uh, th- this has some interesting pop culture that goes into today. Um, there's an anime uh, based off of. Um, uh, based off of a manga called Monster, and one of the characters, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Rosso, uh, I don't know this anime, but they, he says that this film is one of his favorites, and he always cries when it's on. And <laughs> apparently he talks about the beauty of Venice and the soundtrack as a major influence in his life. Uh, so I guess I'll have to watch the manga Monster <laughs> to understand <laughs> what's going on. Uh, and then in, this, in the TV series called The Midwife, um, episode one of the second series, uh, the midwives themselves attend a cinema where they watch summertime for uh, one of the characters' birthdays. Uh, so so people are still referencing it. Um, but arguably, David Lean's impact in cinema uh, goes certainly uh, into other territories after this point. He starts working. He, virtually every other film he makes up to this point is done on an exotic location. Uh, it, it enhances the grandeur of their location and then tells a story of 
deep human emotion in its own right. Um, again, me being very, very David Lean ignorant and going off of Ridge, Ridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence Arabia as my after points, um, I would argue that those films are very much about humanity in their own way. And Summertime is a good stepping stone for that journey. Uh, for him to absolutely take. absolutely um, and and if you look at it it's like uh lawrence of arabia is notable in in a certain perspective as being a movie that is epic in nature but has zero women on screen zero zero women and lots of Ooh. talk about water <laughs> exactly and <laughs> and you can look at that as being a, as being exemplary of uh of of the time certainly yeah. and of hollywood but you look at you look at summertime and you and 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 you can't deny that that there is an undi- uh, like 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 an undeniable sensitivity towards the feminine experience within david lean yes absolutely i would completely agree um and just from what i've seen alone like you know like there like in summertime being the best example of this and this makes me want to go further on a lean journey uh, to, uh, to see brief encounter also an extremely great example of that that's the impression that i got from that documentary is like it seems like this is from a woman's per- like fully from a woman's perspective so i'm on board Absolutely. with that idea yeah. um and so 1945 uh, very early on 1945. Ah, the same year as the horn blows at midnight. So there's some two classic. <laughs> Ooh, double there's hitter. A, yeah, there's a classic Jack Benny movie that nobody talks about. But, well, <laughs> partially because it's partially because it's a bad movie. Uh, but then there's Brief Encounter. <laughs> um, and then the best years of our lives is the following year. Everybody's uh, happy to, that the war is over. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, uh, John, I want to thank you for coming on to the show to talk about David Lean and Summertime. Really quickly, before we go, what would you say if you had to sum up Summertime and like, how do you, how do you think you see Summertime in the films you watch today? Uh, beyond what you had discussed with that Paul Thomas Anderson comparison, because that was an interesting comparison that I didn't even think of, like David Lean's work and Summertime in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a passionate friend, though I'm sure um, Summertime has leaked into his perspective as well. Yeah. Um, I think of um, Summertime as being this this beautiful evocation of uh, of of the melancholy of of feeling as if your life is is passing you by you know which is which is so rarely seen especially in 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 uh in in bigger movies where where the main focus is to you know give you sort of an escape from reality where summertime kind of in in the most charming way looks straight at the idea of like like you're you know you you do you do grow older and and life does pass you by and 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 it's and it's important to to put yourself out there and to experience things even if it's just temporary and ultimately you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna wave from a train as it goes away and you don't get and you don't ever get that gardenia yeah and and arguably that stuff you see in bigger films today when it comes to what we describe as big today we deal obviously we're dealing with an era that has strictly divided itself down the line between super, uh, blockbuster epic and award season 
uh, award season bait. Absolutely. And uh, you you do see it. Uh, I th- I feel like a direct uh, a direct um, descendant of David Lean, particularly uh, summertime, and also I would say brief encounters uh, uh, sort of thematic aspects is uh, bridges bridges of Madison County for sure. Right, it, which it wouldn't surprise me if somebody like Clint Eastwood having. Bridges of Madison County is a film I need to rewatch because when I watched it the first time, I yeah. was, <laughs> I was still like in my mid twenties, and I was like, "Oh, this is fucking fluffy horse shit." <laughs> oh, you little, you little baby boy. Yeah, I'm a little baby boy. Now I've grown into a man. <laughs> yes, but not the kind of man that's gonna tell people to get off my lawn with a gun. The kind of man, the kind of man who's gonna hang out with an orangutan. Oh, Clyde, get over here. <laughs> <laughs> I need, I need, I need my friend here at this time. Uh, but, but yeah, no, it, it wouldn't surprise me though, like because like it's all kiddies, because, uh, that all, I love that movie so much that I mean that's yeah. that's that's the kind of movie that's the movie that was on my mom's uh, VHS collection. Really? Okay, so it's a very different uh, scope for your parents. <laughs> different scope, yeah. and and she did not show it to me. I watched it on my own, and which is, I cried which, for days. Which is good. Like and I, that's why I need to rewatch it so that I can allow my emotional maturity to blossom in that movie, um, because like. Uh, so sad. But, but like regardless of like regardless of like I mean again I'll rewatch it and I'll text you and I'll be like hey you were right and I was wrong and uh, <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh, tear stained text but like Clint Eastwood all jokes aside on Clint Eastwood and the orangutan and his personal politics right now he is a filmmaker who is not unaware of ways that he looks at he looks at, he'll look at another person's work and go okay what can i draw from this obviously mm-hmm. working with sergio leone taught him a lot about how to make a western um obviously making the different war movies that he made allowed him to have some experience when he finally ended up doing something like flags of our fathers and letters from iwo jima and arguably he watched some spielberg and was like i can do what steven does and sure. You know, and with this, I wouldn't be surprised if he's gonna make a movie like Bridges of Madison County, going like, "Well, what, what, what could I, what could I do?" I mean, well, David Lee I mean, made a romantic movie called Summertime. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you especially, I'd say especially brief encounter with the, the, the I mean, the 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 female protagonist with the the voiceover of her telling about the experience of this illicit affair. That is this illicit affair that could never work this doomed true love that that is brief encounter <laughs> okay then now next next time you're on here we're doing brief encounters that'll be another first timer for me can we do yeah let's do brief encounters and bridges of madison county compare Ooh, and contrast. are you saying john that we need to do <laughs> a modern day comparison within the episode itself I don't know. I'll have to check the rule book I set up. Um, I think that'll be fine. I think that'll be fine. I'm I'm allowed to break my own rules because it's my own fucking show and I pay for the storage on it. Until Patreon tells me, uh, until I make a Patreon, I'm paying for it. My fucking rules. Um, but anyway, John, thank you once again for uh, coming aboard to talk about this. Please tell everybody Absolutely. where they can find your work, uh, where it exists online, and also what they can look out for. Uh well you could find me at on Instagram at at uh J Strel J S T R E L and mm-hmm. 
there's a link to Gunther in my bio on there. And, which, uh, which watch Gunther, guys. It's pretty wonderful. The lead actor, Grayson Lowe, is fucking fantastic in it. <laughs> like, Grayson. Yeah. I knew Grayson with you in film school, and Grayson's performance makes me giggle anytime I rewatch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, in a way kind of harkens back to sort of that mentality with his, um, his uh transatlantic accent that we yeah. decided on for that role <laughs> yeah i could tell the moment i saw that i heard that i was like oh i'm, <laughs> I'm it's very it's, it's very Catherine hepburn yeah it's very, very Catherine. Catherine. i also got a little bit of a cary grant vibe out of it and we're like but yeah. if cary grant was just an utter douchebag <laughs> <laughs> it's like if uh if somebody uh yeah somebody's trying to mimic yeah, Cary Grant in, yeah. in, in a bad way, but <laughs> yeah. I'm also uh, finishing uh, another short film uh, called "That's Just Rocks," which uh, should be done within the next couple months, and uh, and and you know writing and you know that sort of thing. So sweet, wonderful, and I'll I'll be sure when uh, when uh, when when your new short comes out, I will definitely be linking people to it on our pages as well. Um, so, and, uh, that's going to wrap it up Thank for you. this year of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. You can find out more about us on our social media pages on Twitter and on Instagram. You can check me out on the real nerds podcast each and every week where I talk with people like, uh, former guest Ryan Frost and uh, future guest Brad Haig, who I believe is going to be talking. I will tease this right now. Uh, as we know on the show, uh, naturally we do films pre 1968 and Brad decided to call my bluff and he chose Batman the movie 1966 as his selection and uh, it's within the guidelines we're gonna do it because <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, it's also very hard for him to find an old film that he likes so <laughs> like, oh, uh, but I want him on he's 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 been an invaluable part of this sh- these these shows and I want him to be <laughs> participate in this um, but it, but until next time guys good night This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 